we go. Hello and welcome to Flying High with Flutter. This is your host, Alan Weimer. Today I'm with an extremely special guest. This is kind of like the, you know, there's a father of Flutter, right? Would be Eric Sedell. And you're, I guess, kind of like the grandfather, right? Uh, one of the co-creators of Dart. So, Casper uh, Lund. So, why don't you go ahead and kind of introduce yourself? Well, yeah, great to be here. I'm uh, I'm Casper. I'm sitting here in uh, in Denmark, uh, and uh, really excited about being part of the uh, of the show here. Um, and it's true, yeah, I did have my my finger in, in Flutter very early on in the in the in in relation to actually building out the, the Dart and the the language underpinnings for uh, for Flutter. So, great to be here. Yeah, I, I found it quite interesting. Uh, as I, I think I was telling you before the show that I tried doing some research about you, and I find you talk more about Flutter than you talk about Dart, uh, which I thought was also interesting. Um, but I mean, even your your whole career is super fascinating to me, as we said before. Um, you know, like what is your, you know, what, first of all, let's let's kind of start like from your your history, right? We talked about kind of the show would just be about your history and and and, and where, how everything kind of happened. So. When you graduated high school, did you already know what you wanted to do, or you know what 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 happened? It was quite simple. Like early on, I got super fascinated with 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 computers, and it started with like the, the Commodore sixty fours of the world, but quickly sort of grew into the the PC area with the you know eighty two eighty six AT and computers, and 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 I I got fascinated by the low level details of them. My machine code programming uh, was the natural. Um, uh, next step for me after learning uh, languages like uh, Pascal and others, which was a sort of great sort of entry entry uh, point to the world of computing. So, so when I when I finished high school, it was fairly obvious to me that that I wanted to do something with with computers and something that was technical and uh, and interesting and challenging. So I I decided to go to university and study computer science. Um, and clearly, that was there was just a blast. Uh, great uh, university here in Aarhus uh, for computer science. And uh, like the early courses on operating systems and programming languages and how it all sort of blends and fits together when done well, just really fascinated fascinated me. Uh, so I think that that really sort of uh, pulled me maybe out of the more theoretical aspects of computer science and into the more like practically let's build things, let's uh, let's innovate at the at the low level and build uh, fascinating technology for for others to uh, to use in in, in their in their work. So I, I quickly got drawn into that sort of practical sort of hacking style of building things in in machine code and uh, and C, and it's yeah I've loved it ever since. Yeah, I'm kind of curious though. What was actually your first programming language? Because that's always interesting to hear. A lot of people with C. I think it sounds could be C or is it something else? No, it, was, it was actually basic uh, back in the day. Um, I, I went to the U.S. as a 10 year old kid, uh, and at that point I didn't really speak English. Uh, but I did speak basic, so I, I was I was telling people around me in the in the U.S. that when they when they asked me thing in in English, uh, I would reply to them I don't speak English, I speak basic, and they didn't really get it. But but that was the language that I sort of grew up on, uh, and I, I learned that fairly well. Uh, and I, I think I got that from my from my father, who was also just uh, interested in, in in those aspects. So he taught me basic very early on. So wait, wait, you mean as a kid you were already a nerd when you said that kind of joke to somebody? Just I speak basic. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that might be true. Uh, I, I probably I learned the phrase from my father. If they if they ask you something and you don't understand, uh, you just tell them that you speak basic, not English. Uh, I think he thought that was pretty funny. Uh, I, I do now as well. I'm not sure I fully got it when I said it. Well, it's it's a dad joke. It sounds like. 
that joke. Yeah, I know. I know. I remember when I was a kid, I used to say to my dad all the time, I'm bored. I don't want to be here. I'm bored. He'd say, yeah, I'm nailed. And he hit me in the head with his fist. <laughs> Obviously not really hard, but. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, basic was the first thing. And then I then I uh, got introduced to Pascal and and, and uh, Modular 2 and sort of uh, high level uh, languages, um, which I, I really enjoyed them, especially like the Turbo Pascal uh, work. Um, uh, IDE, that whole area of having like, great tools for developing code in, that really uh, somehow also sort of uh, piqued my interest in the, in that sort of developer tool space. So yeah, I think I was uh, in some ways uh, fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you see it, uh, to be spoiled early on with uh, with uh, some very inspirational uh, tools and technologies around me. That was fun. So when you, when you're in school, like, was there any particular class that you really enjoyed? Uh, I guess. Anything that was low level, science. yeah, low level, like computer science. So, uh, like uh, courses around arch machine architecture, how how computers work at the lowest level, how operating systems are put together, like how does a memory manager work, and and, and things like that. That really sort of uh, that really uh, appealed to me. Uh, I think I liked uh, operating systems more than languages at that point. I thought that this this like writing code that sits underneath every other piece of functionality in the system was just like a. a, a the, the most meaningful thing I could be spending my time on. So I, I spent so many hours on trying to get my PC to boot my own uh, handwritten um, uh, operating system. I mean, it didn't really do much, but it was just like a f like fun times when like lots of uh, nerds all over the world were connecting over the like the internet that was sort of like blooming at that point in time, and and people were trying trying to write new alternative operating systems for probably for no good reason other than the the, the challenge. Um, it, it was fun. It's very easy to get your computer to um, to triple fault uh, and uh, and reboot spontaneously if you get this thing wrong. So like there's no there's really poor help when you start from from ground up and you learn the hard way that that uh, planning well and uh, and and being smart about how you work with your code is essential if you don't want to spend all your time uh, debugging reboot loops. I don't know. It sounds like if you like low level code, then maybe you know this was actually interesting to you, right? Just kind of trying to find the right the right situation which would cause the problem. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it was it was fun. Now, so I, actually, I'm kind of curious about like how did you get into? Do you had a particular class about operating systems, and then that's what really got you into this kind of low levelness? Or yeah, we we did have a a, a class on that, uh, and we also had a a sort of a compiler construction course, which was also great. Like you get to build your own compiler for a new uh, language that nobody heard of before, and uh, just going through all that that work to uh, to build a tool for. In this case, for pretty much no one, but still something that you felt proud of, like having a, a having the power over over the machine at that level was uh, was tremendously interesting. Uh, I actually ended up, I, I think, through through that to get a job at university, uh, working as a student programmer on a um, on a sort of a, a, a very different sort of more th theoretical uh, project uh, in the space of colored petronets, which was sort of a modeling tool, uh, and and that was that was uh, I think. Quite an interesting change for me. That was like high-level coding in a in a in a in a I think to you probably unknown programming language called Beta, uh, which was like developed here in in Aarhus partly, um, and I really enjoyed that. Like some people were so into languages that they would invent their own and then get entire departments to sort of work and build stuff in that language, uh, and that sort of made new languages not just something you would build but also something that you could use for something that was of a, of high value. And I thought that was that's super interesting. Uh, we did some uh, crazy stuff like try to build low-level driver support in uh, on top of Windows NT to make it possible to have two uh, 
pointing devices like a mouse and a trackball attached to the device to the computer at the same time so you could do like two-handed input on on your workstation which was kind of novel at that point in time uh, like it was well known for sort of graphical um uh, sort of high level like sgi kind of um, uh, setups where people had experimented with the sort of dual input set setups uh, but writing that in our own uh, beta language uh, having to write the drivers for Windows NT to make it all work. Uh, that was uh, that was fun too. Uh, like good challenges, uh, but but uh, but fun. How would you even get to understand how to even make a driver? To me, I have no idea how to even start something like that. It, it used to be a thing, right? So um, like back in the day, uh, I think the um, it was it was very common that you would you would come across a piece of hardware where there just wasn't a driver for the OS that you were you were using. I think people like maybe 15 years ago experimented with. Uh, Early versions of uh, of Linux probably also saw this that you would you would get hardware that just didn't work and like there are two approaches to solving that one is uh, I go online and, and look for the answer and the other one is like build it yourself and uh, and then I think we were just uh, let's just plow through and see if we can build this thing and and get something that uh, that enables us to do what what we decided to try to do at the at the UI level right so uh, didn't accept that as an obstacle we just like did that and. Uh, and Microsoft were really great at inviting us to come to um, uh, like workshops to learn how to uh, to write these. So I have fond memories of spending time in uh, in Oxford uh, learning about uh, like the Windows NT driver model and how to build with that. As a student, it was uh, excellent times, I would say. Well, I wish my school would have had something like this. That sounds super interesting. I feel I feel like everybody else's school did way more interesting <laughs> things, but you know, it's just at least I know how to how to code. That's that's the important part, right? The problem that's, is just getting the education to these kind of things. I was I mean, I, ask, I, this is much later. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying that that uh, in some ways that whole like working as a student program at university is also I think what really got me into uh, virtual machines and working with language technology in a professional setting. Uh, a very good friend of mine, Lars Bach, moved back from the U.S. and he was uh, the father of uh, like Java hotspot technology. Um, and he moved back with his family to Denmark. Uh, and uh, and I teamed up with him as a student there to to work for Sun Microsystems building Java implementation for for cell phones when like cell phones and Java on embedded devices was still a very hot thing. So we built that uh, for a couple of years here in here in Aarhus. Um, so that was sort of my my first sort of professional job uh, for a real, in this case, American company building production ready uh, virtual machines. Well, let's kind of go back a little bit, right? So, uh, yeah. So you, you took your classes. You really love this low level stuff. So that kind of probably steered your direction in life about what you wanted to do, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Think, and you also took a, a master's, I believe, right? And you don't have a PhD, but I believe you definitely have a master's. And that did you just go straight to school after that, or did you work a little bit? No, actually, I, I combined working uh, at university um, and later then at Sun Microsystems with uh, with the with the studying here. When you when you when you leave high school in Denmark and you go to university, it's like a five five year program that you uh, enroll in the master's program, and then there's like an, a, a, a there's a possibility of, of building a PhD on top of that, which is another three years. So you're setting yourself up for for eight years more in school if you go that route. And after those five years, when I was finishing the master's or deciding what to do in the master's thesis, I was, I was more intrigued by getting out there building for sort of real world stuff than doing a PhD, even though my advisor tried to convince me to uh, stick around and do a PhD. He, he felt like the, the, um, the area that I was interested in, uh, again, like virtual machines for small devices, it was interesting and novel enough that we could definitely 
research that a bit more. Uh, but I really just wanted to, to break out of that and, uh, and, and write a, a master's thesis um, and form a company uh, around the ideas in there and in the same in the same setup, you could say. Okay, so you, you graduate, you said you wanted to form a company, but you actually went straight to working at, at uh, Sun, right? I actually left Sun. Right? To, uh, I, I worked only at Sun Microsystems as a student. And then when I was ready to, uh, to finish the master studies, um, I left Sun Microsystems and started a company and, uh, and finished my, my master's thesis in that context. Uh, so it's sort of a, a stage, slight, slightly sort of interwoven uh, studying while working kind of setup. That worked really well for me. I don't think it works well for, for everyone, but for me, that, that was really a nice thing. Um, I've always worked while in, in school. Initially, it was McDonald's. It was not super relevant for uh, for my work uh, now, at least. Uh, but then, at some point, I got the opportunity to work more in my in my field uh, at school, and I think that was uh, that was fantastic. Oh, so you did actually have a, a somewhat normal job, or I did, well, I did. a typical job. I, I would have never imagined. I can. What was your job actually when you were at, at McDonald's? I I was really good at cleaning the tables in the lobby. Uh, I did that. Uh, Better than uh, I expected, I think, and better than my parents expected too. Um, so completely regular stuff. It was it was nice. So your best job at McDonald's is actually was cleaning, was cleaning the tables. You're saying it was very easy. <laughs> so. <laughs> For some reason, I, I can picture you flipping burgers, but not actually cleaning tables. But yeah, it does have to be done. Oh uh, yeah, I did. I did end up flipping burgers as well. Yeah. But that was your favorite was cleaning the tables because it's just very easy. Okay. It was just. Nice, and uh, and you got to work in a high pace, uh, and people appreciated your work. It was very clear, right, that you were doing something for people, and I, uh, I like that. I'm just trying to think if I ever actually thank somebody for cleaning the table at McDonald's. I don't you really think... should. You really should. Yeah. I'm not saying I shouldn't. It just never came to my mind. So well, next it's... next time, next time you're at a at a good burger place or McDonald's, you you should go and uh, thank the lobby, the lobby boy or girl, and uh, and uh, and be happy for their services. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on where you are. When when I was in China, people just did the motion, but not really do anything. Hong Kong's a little bit better. Uh, U.S. You're lucky if the tables are clean. It depends on which McDonald's you're in. But uh, <laughs> okay, uh, I just it's interesting. Any other kind of somewhat normal jobs that you had, or was it just at McDonald's and and basically tech? McDonald's then programming. I, I, that's pretty much my career. Yeah. Okay, so you are part of the statistic where everybody, was it like one in five or four out of five or something that have worked in fast food? That sounds about right to me, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you went to Sun. Now, how did you actually apply to get to this kind of position? Because I don't often hear, I mean, I know that there is this kind of uh, workout, but how, how do you actually apply and, and get through the process? What was the process even like? Oh, for at the Sun Microsystems, it was it was pretty straightforward. I think uh, with with Lars um, uh, being in in Denmark uh, at university, uh, working for Sun Microsystems there, um, I think he he had the uh, the mandate to uh, to hire someone uh, bright and energetic, and uh, I was ready for that. So I think we just teamed up at that point. That was fairly straightforward. Um, like getting hired at Google is a completely different story, right? Uh, at that point, there was way more sort of classical interviewing uh, happening and uh, and other things, but we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Yeah, I thought it's kind of interesting. Okay, so I didn't, I mean, it depends on the company, right? Usually, I think bigger companies, usually they have a different person who is kind of doing a lot of the hiring. Of course, you have to talk to your uh, kind of direct at some point, but uh, so he actually interviewed you and, you know, was there any, what's it like to be interviewed by this guy? Was it, was it like, I had one guy that was actually quite confrontational, right? And I think a lot of these research people can be quite confrontational and they like to argue. And my way of dealing with him was actually arguing back at him. And actually that 
brought some respect. So sorry yeah, if I no, went for too long. But I, I don't think I even realized I was getting interviewed. Uh, so so um, he was sitting in the same uh, part of the university as, as I was, and I was asking him about uh, some technical things because he was uh, a, a, a world-class engineer, and I just wanted to pick his brain on a few ideas. And we just spent some time together, and at some point, uh, uh, I essentially just had a sort of a, a job offer, right? If you want to come work on these things with me, uh, that would be great. And I said, yes, of course, that sounds great. Let's do it. So it was sort of a... a a um, sort of a non-interview uh, interview, if you will, uh, over some some weeks, right? Um, like the best way of doing it, if it's possible, right? Okay, so you know, you're just chatting with him, and that was the interview. Was just you was kind of asking some questions about how does this work, or? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't think I even realized that the that, that we were having an interview. I mean, probably we weren't, right? But it, it sort of grew into that, so uh, that worked well. That's good. At least yeah, he has I, an idea about he has an up, idea about your, how your mind thinks, etc. Right. Yeah, yeah. I ended up working with Lars for twenty years, so uh, so I think that uh, like, somehow we managed to uh, to find a uh, to so to, to hit a good um, sort of working relationship uh, right out of the gate um, after that sort of uh, first few weeks there. Okay, so he interviews you, then obviously you got an offer, you you took it, and what was kind of the first thing you're you're working on? Uh, how was your first day like? So we were starting, and this is what I really loved. We were starting. Uh, building a new virtual machine for Java, targeted for cell phones from scratch, just the two of us. Like we quickly gained a few other people in the US, uh, but um, but it was like small team um, with people that like Lars knew really, really well. Uh, sort of fantastic engineers all around. And, uh, and then uh, me as a student on the side, uh, building core parts of this, uh, this, this thing outright uh, with, with the help of the other guys. So really quickly, I started working on uh, the interpreter for the uh, for the Java bytecodes and uh, making sure that they they ran fast and implemented the correct semantics and uh, and it's just getting in there uh, working on that and and and, uh, and making that all uh, fit together was uh, was great. Um, one of the one of the early things I actually did there and it it sounds a bit weird to think of that the first sort of professional thing I I did uh, in terms of programming for Sun Microsystems was actually build a, a small textual assembler where you could write in C++ code. Uh, you could um, you could write um, essentially function calls that would end up emitting uh, assembly code for the x86. And uh, that's the starting point for our project. So we could build up a essentially a assembly implemented like machine code instructions for the interpreter that we wanted to build because we needed like full control of Every single part of the interpreter, so we wanted to build that in like the lowest possible level of code uh, there is, like the machine code uh, level. Uh, but writing that directly by hand was annoying, so we decided to actually build a small generator for that uh, in C++ code. Uh, Hotspot, where we got the inspiration for, also had this system, but they were doing like binary assembly instead, which like putting the, together the instructions in the binary form they need. We just found that for our purpose, it was just so much easier to just build the textual output uh, and get a traditional assembler in play to uh, to do the final stage of translating that to machine code. Um, that worked worked really well. So that's that's the first thing I put in. Um, does, does that even make sense? Like writing? Yeah, I'm just trying to th trying to think about. So you 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 actually kind of wrote like another light, another bytecode or something that would also be translated into assembly. Is that is that the right way to say? Well, it? Actually, we just wrote a small library in C that would allow us to to get um, assembly code for the x86 emitted in a structured way, um, and with that in hand, we could we could write C++ code that would generate the interpreter for us. 
but it allows you to use C++ and all the structures in C++ to like share parts and uh, and, uh, and and do refactorings at, at that level. So it's much easier for us to control that. Um, so it's just like a, a technique to get to build a fast interpreter really quickly. Uh, and I picked the technique up from from the, the other parts of the team and from Lars, uh, but that's the first thing that I, I built. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's been yeah, more than 20 years since I built that. It was fun. It sounds fun. It sounds like something that's really up your up your alley. Uh, it was exactly the kind of thing I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. So you really kind of found the perfect first job for you. Well, second job, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. There's very little machine code at McDonald's, but uh, but here there's plenty of opportunity to uh, to build this kind of thing. Now that you mentioned that, something came to mind recently is that did your milkshake machine always go down? Because I heard that there's a conspiracy about milkshake <laughs> machines always going down. We did have challenges. One one. Uh, January 1st, there was actually a soda machine. Like uh, people could not get uh, Diet Coke at McDonald's uh, where I worked, and uh, that was dramatic. And people were like, almost crying, right? They just couldn't take it on, on January 1st after a rough night out, uh, not being able to get your favorite oh. beverage at McDonald's. It, it was it was a dreadful experience for all involved. I'm surprised Diet Coke is the drink of, of the night out, right? I never would have thought about that. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe I'm forgetting, yeah. Yeah, but something. Yeah, I guess you you need your sugar after you've been partying all night. Okay, you need to pick me up. A lot of people switch to soda instead of coffee, right? Um. Okay, so after that project, what was your next thing? Was it straight working on Hotspot after that, or you had something in between? We actually finished the uh, this virtual machine uh, for uh, for for cell phones um, for for uh, this Java virtual machine for cell phones for some microsystems, uh, and we shipped that. Uh, and that was like a couple of years spent on, on building it and getting it out. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun. But at, at that point in time, I was also getting to the end of, uh, of my studies and I had to pick something to uh, spend the last year on and something where I could get like a master's thesis out at the other end. So Lars and I, we, we, uh, we had had plenty of discussions about this in the past that it would be fun to to break out of a big American corporation and uh, build a small uh, startup instead and, uh, and uh, build technology for embedded devices in that context and get a like a master's thesis out uh, as, as part of that but but essentially like go out on a limb and try to build technology in context of a startup company instead so we did that in 2002 uh, again virtual machine lots of the same sort of technology space at least uh, but this time around for um sort of embedded devices uh, and uh, i think Back in the day, uh, like there, were, there were lots of interest in, the, in, in small chips and, and things, and we really thought that we could do uh, the world a favor by, by making it easier to write code for a, for a small embedded device uh, than, it, than it was. I, originally, Java was designed for that same kind of space uh, with embedded devices, but it, it gained all of its success, at least initially, on the, on the server side. Um, and then and when Android came along, uh, it, it also got to the, you could say, the, the modern client in terms of uh, or in, in the shape of a of a phone, um, but uh, we really thought that the idea of running high-level code on a small embedded device was was neat and something that we were very well positioned to deliver on. So we we started a company around that idea, and I actually wrote my my thesis there and gave it a a. At least in Denmark, people are quite conservative with their the titles of their thesis, and 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 it's always like towards improving something. And we went all out and called it like revolutionizing embedded software. And uh, and I remember that uh, when we got the uh, the critique from the uh, from the reviewers and the, of the of the thesis, they were saying like this is uh, maybe a bit 
bit too much, uh, and maybe it was. Yeah, I, I guess we didn't end up revolutionizing uh, much, but it was it was a goal. Well, it seems to be, you know, you always have to kind of overpromise in order to get kind of noticed, right? Nobody ever, you know, you got to stir, ruffle some feathers. Yeah. Uh, actually, I kind of want to go back because you, maybe I missed something, but I remember talking about hotspot, right? Now, the hotspot, was that particularly related to, to mobile devices? Is that kind of what, what this so was we for? Did. Because you you're talking about how you're working on a lot with embedded and, and mobile, but to me, I thought hotspot is always on the desktop. Maybe I missed something. So hotspot was a really good name. Uh, so and a lot of the technology that was in the the desktop and the server hotspot uh, ended up being useful in some shape in uh, in this uh, mobile context. So the uh, the Java virtual machine we did was called the the Java CLDC hotspot implementation, and CLDC was a, a connected limited device configuration. I think. I mean, it's been twenty years, but I think that was the acronym. Um, so it was like a hotspot implementation for a different class of devices, a different configuration of uh, of Java, um, and there like one obvious um, difference is just like the kind of APIs that are available and the kind of things you can do with that system are just uh, more constrained, uh, sort of boiled down and uh, and put in a different way. But but at the core of it, right, it's it's a Java execution engine that needs to have a a JIT and has to like have a garbage collector and has to have a fast interpreter. So all the things are sort of there, but they're just re-implemented, and they run typically on on uh, ARM chips uh, or uh, the, the sort of the early chips that went into uh, like the the Nokia cell phones and the, and phones like that back in the day. Feature phones, I guess they you would call them today. Well, that's what you'd call them back in the day. Now nowadays you call them what the paperweights, I guess. Paper <laughs> kind of useless. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So, all right. Now I understand a little bit more about why you why you said that. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So, you you spent a lot. You, it seems like you kind of shipped the hotspot with the CLDC. I think you called it, and then you kind of were just like, all right, let's you know move on to our own thing, right? That was kind of what happened. That's exactly right. Uh, we moved on. Uh, built new technology in a in a startup company. Um, we actually sold the startup company to a Swiss company um, that um, that was really interested in in, in, in this uh, Java and virtual machines for small devices space, um, and and ended up working there for a couple of years uh, on on sort of device technology. Um, so having gone through that experience of of building up technology in a small team, then like getting acquired by a slightly bigger player and, and working in that context for a while. Uh, I still look back at that as a, as a really like fun learning experience, right? That there's something really, really great about being able to start something small, small team, very focused, like going out there to try to really fundamentally improve how something difficult can be solved. Um, and that, that, I think that's been a story that that I've been uh, fortunate enough to be involved in, in a, sort of playing out a few times over the years. Uh, so this like starting over, starting from scratch, build something with an idea of really fundamentally improving how well something can be done. It's been uh, a big part of uh, how I've got myself to be super motivated about working in the same field for 20 years. Uh, can you actually go back? So I think maybe I missed more about like, what was your company's thing all about, right? You, you kind of talked about Java for, for small devices, but that's very broad, right? Maybe you can give a little bit more pitch about what exactly the problem you're trying to solve and then you know, how did you guys get acquired, and why did you guys get acquired? So I think I think it's uh, it's 
I can get back to the story in even more detail uh, a, a bit later because I think there's a, there's a good segue to some things I'm, I'm, I'm working on right now. But at the core of it, right, we just realized that the way you would write software for small embedded devices was very much um, like a sort of a classical old school way of working with Cobra. You would write it and you would put it on the on the hardware of so firmware and you would rarely update it if ever. Uh, at that point in time, you probably would never update it. And that meant that meant that that's, that code on the device was not really serviced in any way. It was just there, almost like a, a, an extension of the hardware, right? Um, and the downside of that was really that the the software quality was really hard to uh, to it was hard to predict any everything that this this thing needed to do uh, after two years in production. So having it be unserviceable, not something you could deal with from the outside, was a big challenge we tried to solve. So our our idea and and, and the core context of our, our uh, of the thesis I wrote was really around enabling these devices uh, to be serviced from the outside by giving them a small in this case not a Java based virtual machine but a Smalltalk based virtual machine which is another uh, sort of old school uh, um, really elegant update oriented language that I uh, that I, I remain very fond of um, so. Instead of building Java virtual machines for cell phones at Sun Microsystems, we built Smalltalk virtual machines for embedded devices in our own startup company. Um, but a lot of the, you could say, the, the motivation for putting Java on a cell phone also applies to putting Smalltalk uh, on a embedded device. It really allows you to change the code after the fact, manipulate the, um, the, uh, the objects and the code in the system as it executes, and I think if, if you're familiar with, with Flutter and hot reloading, uh, then maybe what I'm saying here is, is starting to sort of uh, show you how some of this early work in that space, the serviceability, the ability to change code while the system keeps running and staying hot is something that uh, some people thought a lot about way earlier than, than Flutter and, and something that we worked on very hard in this, in this uh, virtual machine for embedded devices space uh, in in the startup company. We call it OOVM, very hard to pronounce, not the greatest company name, but it was for short for object-oriented virtual machines. So our, our idea was really just to build all sorts of uh, useful object-oriented virtual machines, starting with a with the Smalltalk version that we really liked. Um, and we actually gave a demo where we, we had a, a, a sort of a small robot uh, with an embedded device on it, where we could communicate with the, with the device and actually while the robot kept running and controlling its motors and moving around, we could upgrade and change all the code on the device, uh, introduce new uh, new fields and objects that were already created. Uh, I mean, essentially extend and fix the code while it was still live in there. Uh, so that that sort of a, this serviceability, this ability to change code, work with it, manipulate it from the outside while the system is running, was something we built in uh, and uh, and and put in the the core. Um, support for very early on there yeah that's 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 quite cool so you know i guess you got noticed by this other company and then they just said hey we yeah we i think so, right? i think i think two things happened i think they they noticed that uh, they're also um they're also i think getting ready for um for doing an ipo so uh, at that point in time i think you're looking around to make sure that you have the right uh recognizable tech talent on your team as well. I think we fit very well in there. And also, I think we offered a, 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 a novelty to, uh, to, their, 
to their portfolio that I think was was good for them in terms of uh, coming across as innovative, but also something that I think they really felt like could be the basis for future business growth for them. So I think that was like a great fit for us and a great fit for them. Sometimes it does happen. Yeah. Yeah, especially you guys. So, I mean, you guys must be really famous now, right? Just the, the, you told me okay, we came up with the hotspot or we worked on it together and then now we're working on this and then that must have brought you some real credibility, right? I think Lars, I think he was very recognized at that point in time too, right? He's, I mean, he, he did fantastic work on the, on the hotspot with the team there. And, uh, and I think, I think that was just really recognized. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly sure at that point, uh, I, I think I was recognized as a, as a super strong, program as well uh, but uh, but i think having lars uh, as part of this was a, a major part of the reason why they were super attracted to to getting us on board uh, and i completely understand why okay so uh you got acquired you joined this company i mean how was it like the first day when you know you had to work at this company and and you know what, what was the process like yeah i mean it was fairly straightforward we had our own engineering office in the in essentially the same area as we've been in uh, always. We were sitting at University of Aarhus, uh, right across from where like Lars and I worked on Sun Microsystems Java implementations. So it, it, it felt like just being home, right? What we did get from the get-go was um, some really, really talented uh, business folks on the side as well. Salespeople, people that care about business development that could come in and try to help us, put us in front of existing customers and potential new customers and, and somehow that gave us a, a sort of a, an intro to, to the more commercial side. And I think we've always been a little bit stuck in the technology world. Um, and then there's sort of been our, our, sort of our primary uh, force, if you could say so. Um, but, but then getting into a company that also cared about getting this out there, getting this to the market um, was, was, was super meaningful. Um, they were in Switzerland and we were in Denmark. So clearly there is sort of a, a gap, but like the time zones work out well. And uh, I think we, we it, it worked, I think it worked, worked pretty well for, for us there. Um, clearly uh, there's, there's always challenges in going from like running your own shop to being part of something bigger. And, uh, and I think that's, that, that's probably a story you can hear from pretty much everyone who's gone, gone through something similar. But both you and him are, were at the top of the chain, right? And then once you acquired, you kind of obviously weren't at the bottom, but you were somewhere in the middle. I mean, and then you're just like, oh, I have to actually answer to somebody about my own product, right? That must be a very enlightening experience, right? Yeah, I mean, it is, right? But I think most companies, even even if um, if you if you run them yourself, you you do end up sort of um, answering to either investors or customers. Or I mean, it's very rare that you feel like you really have no dependencies. Um, there's a start phase of any sort of technology project where where you actually are very low on dependencies. People are not depending on you, and you're not really depending on them, and you can really focus and innovate. And that, it's a it's really a, a a time to treasure and really get the best out of. But it is sort of a it's not something that can last because I'm, I mean if, I think if you stick in that mode for too long, right? You're sort of you're sort of in the ivory tower building like for yourself. And even though that can be enjoyable, I think there's a limit on how far you can get with that, right? So it also has to get out there. And, and at some point you have to start like depending on others and allowing them to depend on you. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it was a change, but for me, it was not a, it's not a huge change. Uh, sort of a, as long as you're sort of well aligned with what uh, the, the top of the food chain here wants, it's, uh, it's straightforward. Uh, clearly, when that is not the case anymore, if that changes, then yes, it's very different. So when you got acquired, did you have to actually stick around for some time or they said, you know, you could... oh, no, that's, that's the classical yeah. way of doing it. Right. So you, you stick around for a while and, 
and I think that that uh, the uh, the company at that point in time, like the whole, they were he heavily into the Java space, um, and uh, and I think Java, um, it was sort of getting commoditized a little bit on the on some of these devices. So it was like something like all the cell phone manufacturers, they they had Java, and there was like a check mark. Yes, it was not used for for that much on most of them. So it, it felt like it was a it was a hard thing to to guarantee it would continue to grow and uh, and I think the the company Esmertech uh, was called so I struggled a bit uh, with that sort of post acquiring us I don't think we were to blame but uh, uh, but I think that 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 turned out to be harder to to monetize that well than they 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 hoped for um, and then uh, once you're in that in a company where it starts getting more difficult to uh, to make money. Being on the very innovative side of, of that is is the challenging spot to be in. So after a couple of years there, it felt felt like the right thing to um, to to leave and and look for a, a a home that could allow for sort of more innovative work, pushing technology boundaries even more. Right, um, and that was so sort of 2006. Okay, so when you guys, I mean, was it just you, or was it Lars, or was it? You guys just kind of said like we need to go do something else together, or kind of what happened. I think I mean, usually what happens here when when, when Lars and I work together, uh, usually Lars will uh, will uh, will sort of sort of uh, get the idea first, right? He will he will say it's now we have to act on this, right? It feels like we could be spending our time on something better. I I'm gonna leave, and that felt very natural to me to say that sounds good. I'm leaving too. Right, but uh, but I'm fairly sure that it, it came from him, right? That uh, it was. I mean, he felt like it was time, and I think he was completely right. Um, so I think back in 2006, uh, um, uh, I was very much sort of following his his lead on that because uh, he was just a, um, a tremendous capacity in in the, in the space and uh, someone I who I really wanted to uh, continue working with, and I think he he shared that uh, that perspective, right? So we 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 decided that uh, it was it was good time, and 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 that it, we also had this idea that it should be possible to find something very interesting to uh, to work on within the the space that we were already sort of uh, completely in, emerged in okay yeah okay so it's it's time right so when it's time um like what what's the process to find the next gig is it you know that uh, we, we... somebody's gonna come up to you or sorry go ahead we we just left. I mean, we were four um, uh, sort of early uh, founders of the company. We all left at the same time there, and sort of um, that sort of gave us opportunities. And um, and we were fairly sure. We had two of the founders in in our small uh, small talk based startup company here had had very strong networks in the, in the Silicon Valley. Um, so we were fairly convinced that it would be possible to to get interest from some of these bigger uh, US um, US based tech companies um, and it turned out that at least two of them were super excited about this like VMware and uh, and Google um, so it's, so the uh, it was not something that we knew would happen but it was kind of hoping that um, if we gave it a like a few weeks a few months uh, then maybe some some new ideas some new possibilities would pop up and uh, and then that turned out to be true so, so who was actually approaching you at this time? Was it you said VMware was was actually interested in you guys? Anybody else? Yeah, Google. Uh, so uh, I think uh, Google. Uh, like I think they really wanted Lars to come join them. So I think they they when they learned that he was uh, uh, not employed, I think they were just super excited about it. And so they asked him like, if, could that be something for you? And uh, I think he 
he uh, thought that that could be like a fun fun challenge. Like um, I think Google was growing out of just being a uh, sort of a search company at that point in time. So I think I don't think Lars is a big database guy, uh, but uh, but because of Google's involvement in lots of other sort of client side uh, tooling and uh, and products, I think it was clear to Lars and to me that uh, that there are things that would be fantastic to work on in context of Google too. Um, and I mean, Google in 2006 had like, the best reputation, right? In terms of like tech company, I mean, it still has a great reputation in in, in, in my circles. Um, but at that point in time, it was it was sort of the um, uh, it was like the poster the poster boy for for Silicon Valley, at least uh, from from my seat here in uh, in Denmark. And at, of course, at that time, they also had the mantra of "Don't be evil." But I think they removed that recently, right? They said, still, "I don't you know. still think they're not evil." <laughs> I, I, when I when I joined, they were definitely very keen on not being evil. I, I I think that there, I mean, there are so many good people at Google. I think they 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 do do it. I truly care about what, what they're building, how they're getting it to the market, and all that stuff. But I think when you when you get really really big, uh, it's just it's very very hard to. So be as as clean as you could before, just because you have so much surface, right? Uh, so um, I think the people that are, are are working there are are doing it and doing it for the right reasons, uh, and they they keep on pushing what you can do. I hope you just saw some of the announcements from Google I/O. It's uh, it's quite impressive what's happening there. So it's uh, it's still it's very high on my list of uh, of fantastic companies. Um, yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious about how you feel. I mean, you start up with Dart, and Dart kind of is is. I mean, so you're not. I don't think you're still working on Dart, um, and somebody else is taking over. I mean, that must feel a little. Bit, to me, I think that feels a little bit strange to kind of see somebody taking your ideas and kind of running forward with it. I can imagine that there could be some things that they're adding or removing, and you're like, no, 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 don't do that, or I wouldn't do it like that, or. No, of course, right? But it's. I mean, it's hard to argue with success. So I think. I think. They're doing very meaningful things with it. Uh, I, I think I'd much rather have that and actually see it grow and become a valuable tool for more people than have it uh, stagnate and sit somewhere in some in some form that I I thought was at least early on the, the, the best form. And then the team around it is still like super strong, motivated team that that keep on on pushing. And I think with with Flutter in the mix, they have a like have a real mission now to really change how mobile software can be built. Um, and I think honestly, it's been really fun to watch and follow from the outside as well. Um, it's, uh, I think it's 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 moving moving along uh, and getting to that that point where it has that impact that we always dreamed of, which is fantastic to see. I also thought it was kind of interesting when I was listening to I think I listened to your podcast with um, uh, JavaScript Jabber recently, I think a couple of days ago, and I remember specifically you guys were talking about that people were asking for mix-ins. And then I start to think about, wait a minute, we have something similar called extensions, right? So that was must have been something you were also working on before you left, right? Because that can't just be an overnight thing. So it's, most of the, I think the ideas that are are being implemented in Dart are ideas that, that go back, right? And some of them were rejected early on because they felt like they were too complicated or didn't add enough value. And then I, I think as, as people start using a language, you also see it in different contexts and the things that might not have been worthwhile doing early on suddenly has a lot of value in some contexts. There are other things that also change, you could say, the flavor of the language a little bit, turning it from being a primarily a dynamically typed language with, with some optional typing on the side to being, I would say, a strongly typed language with some dynamic features. Also 
changes what are the most meaningful things to do to the language, I think. So I think that that space and that just like going from essentially designing a language that is supposed to be a fantastic thing for building small things that scale up to understanding that we've, we've hit something really good, uh, but now we're seeing people struggle with code bases that are like a million lines of code or more inside Google. Suddenly what's valuable in a language does change a little bit. Uh, the things that are fantastic for people that are just getting started, uh, but in the way for people that are building millions of lines of code may not be the right things to focus on anymore, right? So the balance shifts. And I think any living language sort of needs to, to be able to, to change with that a bit. Um, I think that's one of the things I really like about language work today compared to 20 years ago. I think people are, are sort of more flexible in terms of their willingness to, to accept change. It's always, it can be hard. Uh, and like Python 3 was not necessarily a great rollout for a lot of people. And I think the stories around that are not ideal. But on the other hand, like they still did it, right? They still actually decided that changing, adapting, modernizing was worth it. And you can argue against that, but I think the mindset for the entire industry is, is a healthy one. I, otherwise, the only thing that can happen is that you need to com completely replace the language and start over, right? Which, which can be good, but sometimes it also uh, sort of sets you back too much. So I think if we can find that balance starting over every now and then, but also be willing to adapt, iterate, change, and even yeah, um, accept that the right decisions uh, or the decisions that were right when you started out may not be right or completely right anymore. I think that's a very healthy attitude to have towards this, right? Because like, like we started that in what, 2010? Um, and uh, like, it, it is not surprising to me that 11 years later, it's used in different contexts. And what's really, really truly important in that are probably the same things, but sort of around the the uh, around the core of that, things will have changed a bit. Yeah, As you yeah I, I do want to. Yeah, I, I do want to get more, of course, into Dart. But what I was thinking about was um, two things came to mind when you were speaking. One is that I was quite surprised about. I feel at least that Dart is moving extremely fast in terms of of changes. Right, like sound all safety. Now FFI right is even more in there. Uh, quite a few other things have extensive, extensive what they call extensibilities or extensions. Extensions. These are all uh, quite a lot of, I would call rather big changes to the language, and it's amazing that somehow that the team has found out. Okay, we can introduce new features, but at the same time we're not going to rock the boat too much. And what we are rocking the boat, it's actually kind of, it helps the boat move along, not just like us trying things and then we're doing the wrong thing. The other thing I wanted to mention too is that you're talking about like people nowadays being more receptive to changes, but like let's not forget. I think if I remember correctly, talked about Python three. I think the I think Guido kind of left uh, Python kind of being on the side because of people being resistant to changes, or at least the changes that he wanted to put in. It's it's and not I a solved problem. It's not a solved yeah. problem, but, but but I think I think the bell. I mean. Lots of people don't like change, but I think the um, there's enough momentum around the, the people in the world that see the value of, of iterating and changing uh, that uh, that the balance has shifted a little bit towards that. It's particularly around languages where where it used to be more more stagnant, perhaps. Look at a language like like Java that 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 like deliberately didn't change much for a long time. They're also now, I think, seeing the value of not getting left behind. And I think they're just completely changed their way of thinking of this and working with it, right? So they're, they're also 
um, at least seen from the outside, right, much more interested in in pushing uh, new changes, adapting, and and working in that in that space, right. Um, that will attract like top talent to working on the implementations because people want to build new things as well. Uh, and it, I think generally it, it is it is a way of of making things not just different but also better if yeah, if done well. Yeah, and clearly there are also examples of people getting it wrong, right, and messing a good thing. Yeah, yeah, it, indeed, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm just actually still thinking about all the changes that Dart's been doing, and I'm still quite surprised that. I haven't heard anybody actually ever complain. In fact, people are complaining that they can't move to null safety, actually, which is <laughs> a bigger complaint. And, and I also wish that things were easier to get to null safety. Um, but yeah, in 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 any case, uh, sorry. So I'm actually kind of curious about like you went to. I mean, you went to Google, or Google came to you, or, or to you and Lars, and then like because you said there's so many things that you guys could be working on, like. How was the process that you could see? They say, "Oh, what do you want to do? You want to do this? Okay, we got this project that could be interesting." Um, I think I think Lars, um, as part of the sort of the discussions here, found that they were they're thinking about doing um, more on the browser side of things, and I think we saw that the browser was right in front of so many people in the desktop experience. Uh, so so anything in that space, like trying to improve the browser as a is a platform for for code for applications was something that we we both thought would be like super interesting and that turned out to be exactly what we ended up working on right the the chrome team had just been started um, and like, what sits beneath the chrome of the car it's the v8 engine so we thought that the like um, this is a very meaningful thing it's a new team within google so people like everyone is building sort of from scratch here um, and uh, trying to put together an, a new product that we like it's exactly our kind of thing, right? Build from scratch, put together a new product, and try to get it to the market, right? Um, so that just felt like a an obvious uh, place and also an obvious use of of the uh, technologies and the know-how that we had, right? So, uh, can you make JavaScript run faster in the browser? Of course, like we were just completely sure of that, right? We looked at it; it was it was very fragile. I mean, it was so easy to write code that would like. Get the browser to its knees, like uh, infinite loops and whatnot. It would not tolerate that well. And also, just like if you if you started like throwing complex algorithms at it, it would just be so, as Lars would say, dog slow. Um, it, it would just, I mean, just didn't feel like it had been optimized well. It hadn't been designed for robustness of performance, and it hadn't been optimized right. Um, and we just thought that hey, this is a great opportunity, right? And I, part of us probably thought that this is like. Um, like ripe for for change and and ready for for us just getting in there and trying to uh, engineer this the right way from uh, from ground up. Uh, so that's what we did. Uh, that was that was a ton of fun. No, it's it was it was it was great, right? No lines of code, starting from scratch, and you know the kind of thing that we built from the get go. Uh, again, assembler that would uh, allow us to uh, to to build uh, the first sort of the JIT uh, for for V8 uh, from the uh, within the first like two weeks, um, so like back to square one, start over, right? It's great. You know, you're going to confuse a lot of people again, right? Talking about uh, using Java methods for your JavaScript, because <laughs> people always get confused between the two, right? Yeah, no, it's, it is confusing. <laughs> you know how that how that story, like the reason why it's called JavaScript. I mean, it actually my had understanding was it was a marketing thing that they wanted to market. to Java people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think it, 
I mean, right now it probably just leads to confusion, right? Which is unfortunate. But I, but I agree with you. I think the story I also heard was was a marketing thing, right? Some people wanted to to uh, to benefit from the Java brand in this context as well, and sort of bring it into uh, sort of align it with that. Um, yeah. So yeah, we came from Java, worked with Smalltalk, ended up writing a, a high high performance JavaScript implementation for for Google uh, at this point in time. Uh, and uh, at some point, actually, we started like, toying with a few other technologies inside. I stayed on the on the V8 team for a little bit longer than Lars, and I I took uh, so my first uh, sort of lead role on the on the project there, writing the uh, the first uh, sort of adaptive uh, um, optimizing compiler for JavaScript, uh, Crankshaft it was called in 2010, and uh, and we actually put something um, sort of an old technique into this in this context, which is something that I don't think a lot of people realized how how cool it is and it, it has a weird name that most people don't think of as as sort of the one of the, the best ideas in uh, in in making your programs run fast and it's called de-optimization and people think that, that must be a bad thing like why is de-optimization a good thing and it really it really is um, the support you can put into a system that allows you to back out of optimizations that turned out to be too optimistic or too aggressive uh, so with a de-optimization engine in your system, you have the opportunity to to make bets. Say, I think the code is going to uh, mostly follow this path or do this thing more often than this thing. If it turns out I'm wrong, we will de-optimize, go back to a more uh, a slower and more primitive form. But we have this translation engine that allows it to to get out of jail, uh, get out of the, the two optimistic optimizations. But just having that. Part, this 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 way of getting out allows you to be much much more aggressive to say I don't really know but I think that that people are going to call this method only on strings not on anything else so I'll optimize as if that's the case and then I'll catch if they ever do something that's outside of what I optimized for and then I'll just de-optimize and then we put that into crankshaft like this v8 um, jet on steroids uh, from the, from the get go because we thought thought we need something that that enables that next like factor of three performance increase and that just worked really really well and i think today most of the engines out there in in the javascript space have this kind of thing built in but that's kind of kind of things i like to take something that sort of invented in a sort of more academic setting bring it into a, a practical context in this case a dynamically typed language like javascript and uh, get it out there and that get others to get inspired and start building on some of the same ideas. Uh, so yeah, de-optimization has always been one of my favorite ways to make your code run faster, which sounds like counterintuitive, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Kind of almost like machine learning or something to it. Or, uh, I was also starting to think about like, doesn't the CPU also do something similar where they try to, but that's also how they get exploited, right? Yeah, you know, that that is true, right? So they they do they they generally generally call it speculation instead, uh, but it's sort of the, the same kind of thing. And, and clearly, they also need to get out of that. Um, the problem that we saw a few years ago when they they found that that was exploitable was that it actually left traces when they did the speculative code execution. So you could tell if it tried to do that, and that was exploitable. I think if you if if the optimization works correctly, if you will. Um, the ideal is at least that uh, you cannot tell if you went on a wrong path and got back again. Uh, most things are just like, security-wise extremely difficult today because of uh, of the realization that you can convey a lot of information through timing as well, and it's just kind of hard to control that. So, um, 
but but yeah, it is certainly something that CPUs do as well, speculation, and uh, and then so somehow unwinding from that and executing as if they never did the speculation, right? It's it's part of that. Okay, okay, that's pretty interesting. Um, but I think the funny thing uh, about like you actually maybe let me step back a little bit more. You said that I mean they had a Chrome team, right? So was there actually a, a Chrome beta out by then that people had, or was it just an internal project? It was the it was a big secret. It was a big secret, even within the company. Okay. It, it's not something that we uh, that we talked about. It was something that we we felt like was um, was worth preserving because we just knew that it would generate a lot of interest if we told the world. Um, so when I when I joined, okay. we had our own uh, own team there, and uh, and we were working on the browser, and, and we we weren't able to tell tell anyone that. Um, Chrome got its uh, start from uh, from essentially porting uh, WebKit to Windows. Um, and uh, WebKit was the, uh, or is the rendering engine for, for Safari, um, for, for the Mac. Um, so they still had the old JavaScript engine in there from, uh, from, from WebKit. And we just like essentially built a, a replacement for that with V8. And we made V8 something that you could use standalone as well from on the outside, which helped us build it, but also enabled something like Node.js to just pick V8 up without Chrome and put it into a server-side context, which was like awesome to see. I still remember when we had Ryan Dahl visiting us in the in the office office, the like the inventor and the uh, first implementer and and uh, and hacker on on Node.js. That was just a, a good experience too. So he he was just able to get a, a high quality JavaScript engine, wrap it in a a web server context, and get Node.js out really really quickly. And I think he did a fantastic job on that. But but this this way of building it so it could replace the JavaScript engine in the browser that was that would be released as Chrome later, um, and then also uh, make it available for others. I think that that, that was a that was a good decision we made there. But yeah, Chrome was a, an internal uh, sort of secret, uh, and we we worked on that for a while before we started sort of, uh, dog fooding it on the inside of the company, getting people to to use it. And I remember it was it was a fun fun thing, and we we had a dog food release out in, internally, and the first version where we um, where we enabled V8. Um, we could, we, um, we we got ready to send out the new sort of internal release of, of the, this uh, alpha version of Chrome, if you will, inside inside Google, and we sent it out with V8. And I think we were all just super impressed how much faster it was, like loading Gmail, everything just felt just much, much smooth. Um, turned out we forgot to enable V8 in that release. So it was all just like how we perceived it. I think we all wanted it to be great. In reality, at that point in time, lots of the web apps were not really pushing uh, they, they're so constrained by slower browsers like Internet Explorer that they they just couldn't really push the functionality to 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 the limit because they didn't have a fast execution engine. So so most of them just didn't really have a lot of like media JavaScript to um, to throw at our new new engine there. So it made very little difference for existing apps at that point. That quickly changed once we got it out right because then suddenly. We had something that people could throw more at, and they wanted to throw more at it. And then today, right, JavaScript apps are huge and everywhere. Uh, but at that point, I still remember that sort of somewhat embarrassing moment when we realized that we shipped the new version where we thought V8 was enabled. We even celebrated, and it turned out it wasn't. So yeah, that's the way it goes. So was there like a like a dot one kind of patch release that kind of got pushed down and said, "Sorry, I try this one instead." Uh, that was the next next release on, internally, right? So, um, so when we were ready to release Chrome, um, sort of to the to the public, right? Um, we had a, uh, a cartoonist uh, essentially write up technical information about the product, 
and tell the story about like why and how we built Google Chrome. Um, and, and that was part of the, um, the, uh, the announcement, like getting that out, that, that cartoon. Um, and I think you can still find it online. Um, and I, I'm in it and Lars is in it. And we were talking about how we did JavaScript and all that thing. And so that, that was fun to do. What Google in, uh, in Silicon Valley didn't expect was that like the German postal services are very efficient. So they, they mailed the, the, uh, the cartoon, like a physical copies of the cartoon, um, to, uh, to tech people in the world, also in Germany. And the, the folks in Germany, I think it was in Germany, they got them, uh, I like get at least a day early, earlier than they expected. So suddenly the whole internet knew about Google Chrome. It had not been announced. You could not download it, but they're all reading this cartoon about it. Uh, so we, I mean, we, we scrambled on the inside and, and, and made sure to get ready to release it really, really quickly. And I think it got out a few days later, but, but we had the whole internet, at least that's how it felt like for us, right? Talking about technical details of a product we built without being able to see it or try it. They still talked about the, like the, the technical way we put it together. Maybe that was actually like the ideal way of launching a very sophisticated technical product. At least it worked really, really well for us, right? People were talking about how um, how it was put together, how tabs were isolated from each other, how, I mean, how everything was built and for which reasons they were built. So like, we gave them nothing but that information and like, they, they just they got excited about it. I'm actually kind of curious about what is, uh, was it ever released about like why they chose the name Chrome for for the browser? It's a good, it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have the, the, the official answer to that, um, but I, I think for a, for a long time, uh, it, it was sort of a, it was sort of a um, bit of a uh, tongue in cheek kind of name for it because the um, the the UI parts of uh, some of these applications were known as as Chrome. Uh, so I think if we were building uh, like uh, looking at the internals of Firefox or some of the other things, some of the the UI elements were were referred to as as Chrome, um, and the the uh, the the idea in in the Chrome UI design was really to focus on content, not Chrome. So like the web page, not everything else that's floating around, not big title bars, not drop down menus everywhere. Just like focus on content. So the the, the tagline sort of for the design work was like content, not Chrome. So I think someone just thought it was would be fun to call the product Chrome, given that tagline, which was like ultra confusing, but still like it kind of worked, right? So I think that yeah, was yeah, the. No, no. That was the uh, intent, right? So it's, in some sense, it's, it was intended to be designed completely opposite of its name, right? Focusing on, on web content, not everything else. Yeah, yeah. I remember using it. I thought that was actually pretty cool that like everything was really uh, go, slim or, or slender right on top. The, the tabs are quite small. So that, that makes more sense now. But um, I find it quite interesting too, like, so uh, obviously, I mean, I don't want to take some of the shine away from you, but also the Chrome when it came out, it sounds like there was a lot more to it than just V8. Of course, V8 was pretty, it's pretty massive to, to what it came out of it, but still Chrome itself, it sounds like you, it wouldn't even turn on V8 yet. And all of a sudden everybody felt like everything was quicker, right? Yeah. So it's just, yeah, I think, I think there was right. general improvements all the way around, right? A lot of the, I think a lot of the things that people really fell in love with uh, in, in Chrome early on was uh, that the design, a really, really awesome um, uh, URL bar, like a place to, to write your things with auto completions and suggestions and whatnot. That was, that was fantastic as well. 
And then the fact that it was a really well done multi-threaded design that, that really uh, made sure that there were very, very uh, few places where you could feel the UI become unresponsive. It was very responsive all the way through. So, uh, and the team spent a ton of time on that. And that, that's part of the reason why Chrome felt so extremely quick, right? Focus was on quick startup, quick interactions, no um, unresponsiveness, just this feeling that you're in control and it's just uh, there for you. I think that that worked really, really well. And initially V8 was part, like more an, an enabler for what was to come than the reason why it was fast. But when you when you ship something and benchmarks demonstrate that some things run like 30 times to a faster than uh, on competing browsers, people will give a lot of credit to that as well and think, oh, that's the reason why Chrome feels so fast. And, and that's probably unlikely to be the case, right? It's probably because it was so responsive and so fast to start that people fell in love with it. Like, I think today, right, V8 uh, probably turned out to be more important than people thought because it really enabled uh, lots of innovative uh, work to be done on top of it. So actually, that's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm actually... Like kind of going back to V8, right? When you came out with V8, I mean, it's, I can't imagine having a JavaScript interpreter that's actually outside of a browser because at that time we weren't really doing things like that, right? So wh why did you guys decide to kind of have it isolated? It's it's actually for almost embarrassing reasons, right? We, we just, Chrome as a project was a big project. So if you were to commit changes to to the Chrome code base, whenever you were to commit a change to the system you worked on, you would be like potentially getting in the way of a lot of people. So we just wanted to decouple ourselves from from that, right? Work on something where we could deal with the integration on a on a weekly basis, not every single uh, on every single commit. So it's more like a a a, uh, a way to make our engineering tasks and efforts more efficient. Uh, so. Uh, I think we also thought that maybe it could be useful outside the context of the browser, but like the primary reason was really just to decouple ourselves for that that big engineering effort and say, okay, we, we will build something that's like a, a black box black box replacement for um for a chunk of your system, and then we'll we'll roll it in there um, when when time is right. Uh, so that gave us some some benefits of the decoupling. We could we could go do our stuff on the side, um, but I, I once we like three months into the project and we we were like like 25 times faster than the com com competition uh, and people got excited about it and wanted to see it integrated and uh, and uh, and be uh, sort of more closely coupled to uh, to chrome in there so yeah we just yeah, kept it outside just to make it easier for us to hack on it essentially i'm also kind of curious too because i know i could install v8 by itself like so was it that chrome was released first and then v8 or v8 came out first or they came out at the same time and it was already decoupled as soon as it came out it was decoupled as soon as it came out. Um, so yeah, and we, I think we open source on like, pretty much the same day. And then from there on, you guys were, when you open sourced everything, you must have just be committing everything in, in public, right? Yeah, that was the model for it. We just worked up against the, the public re repo. Um, and I'm not sure we, we, we were not super uh, sort of engaged in trying to get people from the outside to contribute initially. Uh, I think that that's, that's gotten a lot better. Uh, I think we we felt like we we had so many big things we had to accomplish in the in the in the Google setting that we focused uh, exclusively on that. Um, so I think it sort of it it grew from being like here's open source thing you can go look at to being a real uh, engine that others can uh, can at least think about contributing to and and uh, and, and using um, over over some years. Uh, but I think for us it, that 
the uh, the the community part of the open sourcing never really like sort of made it to the top of the list. And I think that's the honest honest version of it. We were so busy on trying to uh, make it faster. So the goal of V8 was actually just to be faster. Is that kind of the main goal, or was there any kind of like three main things or something like that? I think faster, uh, but but also much more robust, right? Uh, I think I think we wanted something where where we could see ourselves running really massive web applications on top of, and that really required the memory manager, the garbage collector, and all that stuff to really scale well to large applications too. And you can say that's a performance thing uh, as well. But just making something that's that's very hard to um, to uh, to make do the wrong thing, something that's robust against even massive applications that that performs well at scale, uh, was was a big chunk of what we wanted to do. Like we wanted to build sort of something for non-toy apps, something for real massive applications. I remember putting in a um, a limit on the amount of memory each instance of V8, each tab in your browser could use initially. And we put in 32 megabytes and thought that was that was plenty. Like no web app should use more than 32 megabytes of memory. And I, I'm sure that if you look at your browser today, you'll find you have tabs that use like a couple of gigabytes. So we we had to change that limit at some point. But initially, that was just like way too much, even right. Uh, but it's just like a, a different time, and also the kind of things you would throw at an engine like this, which is very very different, much simpler, much smaller, simple things really. So what's the secret of success for V8 in terms of like the optimizations to make it really that much faster? Um, I think that the biggest insight was that uh, lots of applications, maybe less so than, than it was the case back in the day, but but at that point, JavaScript was very dynamic and you could do all sorts of weird things to it, but most code that actually ended up running on these uh, in these browsers didn't do these things, right? So if you if you could optimize for the case where people were not adding new methods to their objects all the time while the program was running and make it really fast in case they didn't. I mean, it's against this sort of de-optimization idea at play, right? Um, and catch if they did and fix it, um, but still make sure that that those sort of optimistic, let's assume that people use this as a fairly simple language where like methods are where they need to be and you can call them this way. I think that that was the, the, the core insight. And once you look at it that way, you you can put in some uh, some tricks and techniques that catches if people go outside of that, and if that not, you can start using optimization tricks that are applicable from from languages like Smalltalk and Java that are more well defined, where people do not change the methods sort of on the fly as part of the program execution. So we I think we just sort of pulled JavaScript out from this very dynamic thing. You can change everything, and thought, well, what if you don't? And what if we optimize for the case where you don't? Maybe that subset of the language will actually run really fast and it did okay okay that's that's, that's interesting okay um all right so you worked on va for a while um and then kind of what was the next step and how did you know that that would be the next thing to work on oh worked on v8 optimized it through crankshaft and all that stuff and and we threw in like so many hours like countless hours on making this robust making it stable implementing all the the weird and exotic parts of javascript to write eval that can introduce like a new local variable that it can delete again and just like crazy stuff like that the ability to take a function uh, that you you found somewhere and say tell me what argument someone provided to the last time you called this thing if it's still actually executing on the uh, active execution stack things like that were just hard to implement and get right and it just V8 just sort of kind of ballooned from there like the core beautiful V8 that we love to build initially to this that thing that could actually run everything on the web. 
And there's something I take a lot of pride in actually like making it through, making it still fast, even though we we made it complete as well. But you could also tell that the core of it was was simple, very robust, and everything sort of on the outskirts of that was much more difficult to keep robust, secure, all those things. So we just we just found that we had an interest in, in saying what what would happen if you actually found a way of disallowing everything that made JavaScript really expensive, difficult to implement efficiently, and just got a much smaller core, something that was really built to be the foundation for the future of web apps. Because people need robustness, they need performance, they need something that works in a mobile setting, that needs it just needs something that's really, really good and simple. Because I mean the idea at least for me is to try to build complexity on top of simplicity. I mean if you think you do it the other way around, you try to build something so simple or or, a, or a try to achieve a goal on top of something that's very complex, you sort of fight the, the system all the time, right? You, there are intricacies or difficulties just figuring out, like, how do I make my JavaScript code run fast? I think for a while, that was a big challenge for people. They didn't know, like, can I use try-catch or is that slow? I don't remember. Maybe it's fast on Safari, but slow. It was just difficult for people, right? So we thought, hey, what happens if we go back and say, let's ditch JavaScript. Uh, let's allow people to write code web applications in a new language that has this sort of the, the core of what made V8 good, uh, but have none of the problems. And that was that. So we, we, we really thought that by doing that, we could, we could simplify the, the code base that everything else had to be built on top of and make it much faster for us to push performance and, um, and uh, and robustness in, in that space. We had ideas about serviceability as well, so that with 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 Dart and the mix, maybe we could make that sort of high level changes of uh, dynamic behavior more structured and better to understand, so people will start using that more. And we just had had ideas on how the web could go from being a a great place for applications to being a truly awesome place. And it all, at least in our heads, right, revolved around this idea of of giving it a a more structured, a more useful uh, language um, so we, we came up with dart and um, and um, we pitched that internally and and clearly there were other groups at google that that thought the same thing they were building applications and they struggled with javascript uh, google had google web toolkit that had uh, closure compiler had a, some some different options there for trying to make it more manageable to work with javascript scale but but they're also looking at something that were more structured allowed Allowed them to to work comfortably on on very large applications. So we thought, hey, that's that's a good match. So we teamed up with a couple of these teams and formed a fairly large start team to try to build a new language like for the web. Um, and we really strongly believe that it was important to do two things well: build native support, like a virtual machine that really demonstrated that this could run really really fast. Um, at the same time, also uh, allow this to be useful in other browsers so we didn't get people to be stuck in, I've written this piece of code and it only runs in Chrome. We thought that was a bad thing for the for the web in general. Uh, so our, our like, long-term like, ideal would have been to get the other browsers, vendors to adopt Dart as a technology for the web and get them to be excited about this. I think the way we approached it and the way we ended up um, trying to convince them to do this and clearly that was um, that was challenging to do and i don't think we, we we did a super good job on that but we also i think learned through this that having like a healthy competition between the browser vendors and getting them all sort of excited about moving the web forward uh, in some reasonable steps 
was challenging enough, then coming in with something that looked like completely proprietary technology and throwing it into the mix and say, oh, by the way, we also want you guys to, to get this thing integrated into your browsers. That was just too much, I think. Um, and, and at that same time, right, the whole squeeze on mobile happened. Um, so offering a browser that came both with a JavaScript engine that, that like big and bulky V8, that was uh, proven technology and a new thing uh, was challenging, right? Uh, because like, suddenly like, you, you, would, you would go from having a single implementation of a language in the browser to having two. And that just comes with a big cost. And at some point, I think we realized that that fight was just sort of not worth it. And, and people were probably better served with, with compiling that to JavaScript in context of browser. And we, we got some success through that. Like uh, the whole Google ads offering, what used to be called AdWords, it's a, a giant web app that, that is like a money-making uh, part of, of, of Google was rewritten in, in Dart and the team that was pretty happy with that. With that. Uh, so we, we found some, some, some limited success with that. Um, but in some sense, right, we were, we were always sort of interested in exploring the space where the Dart virtual machine technology could really shine. And um, and we we had a few areas. Server side Dart was a thing. Um, we had a um, we had some some interest in using it from the outside in that context as well. Uh, a few companies were were very interested in in, in using Dart instead of Node.js. Um, and I, I think sort of we had some some success there. But one of the things that's really nice about Google is that like they really want success to be not just um, sort of the bar is not. Sort of reasonably high, it's very high. So I think for something to Dart to really have a, a chance at getting uh, sort of a long life, uh, it had to be in a place where it added a lot of value, right? And so I think we were definitely looking for places where that that could uh, that could work out for us. We tried a few things. Uh, one is actually uh, going more to the embedded side of things. Uh, I actually ran a project called Dartino, which was like a small version of Dart for uh, I, I love embedded devices so i thought this is a great match we saw some of the, the the problems that were that we identified in in our startup company were still present we thought that hey structured enough can actually fit here turned out that dot libraries were a little bit big for this uh, so there were some some trade-offs that were not super natural in this space but what really made us like, stop investing in Artino was the fact that something magical almost magical happened from the from the chrome team from a from a thing they called like sky which uh, is the sort of the first version of uh, what is today called flutter the team there came from chrome they came with this idea like there's so much stuff in chrome i mean essentially the dot idea you could say just for the browser there's so much stuff in chrome that people don't use to to build beautiful web apps what would happen if we just ripped that out and and started over with the things that are really high value, the core things that just work really, really well and build on that and let people benefit from having a smaller a smaller base, right? Can we build something that's uh, that then suddenly is small enough that it fits well on mobile and just is a great UI toolkit for those things? And for that to work out, they needed a, a language. And they, I think they found found Dart there and it just kind of kind of worked for them, right? It's, uh, they, they stuck it in there and it was like, peanut butter and jelly right it, it's just I, some people really like that i'm not a fan of the combination but they claim it's a good combination right and this was definitely a good combination so you got a really well designed runtime system a language and a implementation of the virtual machine that really fit well together and then you got on the other side of that a ui toolkit that was just well done for 
um, sort of custom UI work and 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 graphically uh, impressive uh, web applications that were sort of joyful to use. So like the combination just sort of clicked right. And once we saw the first demos of it, I think we we're just all sold then. And then I think focusing on too many things at one time, uh, Datino and Dart for the web and and uh, and Flutter was just something we felt like we can probably do a better job with Flutter for Flutter if we focus on that instead of also being doing a little bit of embedded work. So we actually just made the call and said, I think we could uh, spend our time more uh, and better if we uh, if we go to the to the Flutter side and and try to figure out how can we make that even better for Flutter and how can we make Flutter even better because of that. Um, and then I think that this is where you started seeing us from the Dart team talking more about Flutter and, and and engaging much more in that because we just felt like there was so much we could learn from people that were using Dart in a in a new context in a place where we we hadn't seen it used before on mobile. I, I'm so curious. Actually, a question came to my mind a while back and I forgot to ask you, which was how much kind of internal uh, talks or pushes is there when it comes to making. Uh, changes to certain things, right? So I'm sure somebody in Google Management team said, you know, we could really use this extra feature. You know, I, I I'd like to have that. Would you? Can you work on this? Versus if it came from the outside, somebody kind of making a, I mean, like GitHub making like an issue and and or you know appealing to you on a form or something. Um, and then after that, I'd like to follow up with kind of like how did this whole entire discussion with, you know, how did Sky get started? It, what you know, and and how do they come back to you and say we'd like to do something together? So sorry, I kind of gave you three different things, but these are three things in my head that I'd like to know about. Um, so yeah, on the on the language improvement front, um, I mean, I think when you work on languages, you get lots of feedback, and I think you 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 learn to um, to to at least appreciate that any kind of feedback is, I mean, it's very subjective. Um, so when you when you can get feedback that feels less subjective and more based on actually we've used this pattern in 10,000 places across the whole code base in Google uh, and we've learned that if you just did this instead it would be much better that that has more weight right so I think it, it doesn't really matter if it's internal or external but that sort of that volume that that quantification to it where people can tell you that this this matters because um, it does change how, I think how you perceive it I think we, we probably had more sort of Discussions and and uh, and uh, areas of, of conflict on what to do with the language internally on the Dart team, right? Because we also cared so deeply about the language. And I think you find this in a lot of language uh, teams that I mean, you have this mostly healthy, but also sometimes really unhealthy, like discussions about like where to go, what to do, what to follow, what are the principles. Like it's it's very difficult to do this well because there's a lot of uh, subjectivity to to it. Um, and then whenever you hear something from a customer or from a user. Uh, you and there are two things you can do. Right? You can bring it forward as a sort of an anecdotal uh, evidence for something, or you can start using it as, as an argument for doing something. And you probably, I think we all have done some of that in, in the past, right? And, it, and it's meaningful, but it's also something you have to to find a good balance for. It's it, it's a real challenge. Um, and I, we certainly had our challenges in, in that. I think it became simpler when Flutter arrived. Suddenly, I think what we were optimizing for became smaller. I think we knew the web part very well. Um, but suddenly we also had this mobile part where, where I mean, some of the, the features that you mentioned have been brought to the table recently. Uh, we could see that they could work out in Flutter and we could even get feedback from the Flutter team and, and users of Flutter uh, that, that this would make sense for them, right? Uh, so I think that that's the balance there. It's, it's less about internal versus external, but sometimes, yes, 
who just knew the people and trusted the people on the inside more and they they, they get that gave them sort of a, a larger voice um the other question you you had was around how like how flutter got off to a to a start um and i think i mean eric seidel can probably tell you the story much better than i can uh, but but i think it really was the same kind of sort of idea that when you work with like technology uh, sort of in, in context at some point you might get um you might feel that what, what you're spending most of your time on is not adding enough value, right? You spend all your time making sure that it still fits with everything else it has to fit with. And if you just had a way to cut off sort of all that fat, you could move so much faster and make, make the system so much better, so much more quickly. Uh, and I think, I think that's, that's the thought experiment they started with, right? Um, that could we really move these things faster? How small could it be if we just like dropped all this? I think there, there's a hypothesis that you could make it so much smaller if they were willing to drop all these things. And I think that turned out to be right. So uh, I think Google is well known for supporting this kind of innovative work. Uh, and and once again, it's sort of, they allowed a group of super great engineers there to to try it out. And I think they just, they hit on something, right? Um, so hats off to, to to them. I think that's that's sort of the, the birth of, of Flutter, you could say, right? I think it's very close to the story around that, right? We looked at this thing, we thought, what what happens if we, we cut a lot of things out and start over on these things instead and put it together in a different way. Um, so I think the, the mentality there is just like, don't settle for, for what it is today. Don't accept the status quo. Be willing to, uh, to go outside that if you can prove that it, that it, uh, that it adds enough value. And I think we, we were struggling with that there for a while. And uh, I think that is certainly not struggling on that front anymore. Right? I think it's, it's proven that it's actually super valuable to, to flutter as a uh, as a product and to uh, to other parts of google as well where it's used in a web context yeah yeah I, I definitely have to say so i think to me uh of course i heard of dart and i kind of said why, why do we need our language at this time i was using CoffeeScript quite a bit uh i never really looked because to me oh compiles to javascript okay not a big deal uh of course not until flutter kind of came out and it's like no this compiles to native and also it also has the ability to to hot code reload uh you know with the vm and all this it's like okay, let me take a look at this. This is getting interesting now. No, it, it is interesting, right? And and notice that that a lot of the things that are interesting in Flutter are not because of that, but a few things that really make Flutter exceptional are at least in part because of that. Like the hot reloading support built by a, a, a few team members in the, in the US uh, just enables something novel, right? We we talked about this, and we I mean we I think we've known about this technique for a while, but just Making it so robust and so useful as it is in Flutter is, is just, uh, I think, a, a a great way of taking a good idea and actually making it like, useful in, in practice, right? It's something you can trust. It, it actually works, I think, uh, compared to some of the other like, stateful uh, refresh techniques that some other tools use. People tend to uh, at least tell us that that uh, it often like doesn't quite work, so they, they don't use it as much as they thought they would, right? For Flutter, I think most people actually use the hot reloading a lot. Um, there are technical reasons why why that works well too, because of the framework, because of this like the functionally driven uh, approach the framework has. It's part of the secret sauce here. Um, but but that implementation of hot reload also really really helps. Yeah, actually, I'm kind of curious. Like, I mean, obviously, I really not obviously I can say um, we just kind of sitting down, kind of having a cup of coffee, talking to Lars, and all of a sudden Eric kind of sits next to you and says, "Take a look at what I'm working on," and 
and uh, you know, what do you what do you think? And by the way, I'm using Dart. Like, what was kind of the conversation? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So um, I got dragged into some early conversations about how they could how they could build this. Um, just because of our expertise in the JavaScript side of things, they they were looking at different ways to uh, everything for how to observe property changes, like Angular style, or do the more functionally uh, React style thing. We got dragged into that fairly early on, right? Just because I think we we had a good good take on like performance considerations and all that. So I think we were we were used <clears throat> as a, um, as a sounding board for some of their design discussions. Um, and when we realized that they were that they they were able to use that in this context. Um, initially, I think we were a little bit skeptical. I wonder if this is gonna like is this gonna turn into something. And we were like we're always busy with doing stuff for other users and customers and whatnot. But like, quickly, I think we realized that this really had potential. Uh, I think you you know this feeling when you when you, you see something and it just clicks. Uh, when we saw the like the the presentations of Sky that we that we showed off to a, a, an early Dart developer conference. Uh, it just like it just it just clicked right. It just this just makes sense. Um, so yeah, I think I think that was um, it felt a little bit accidental, but I think lots of good things do. And I think once realized that what it was, uh, it just felt very obvious to work very closely with uh, with with the Flutter team on on these things and uh, and yeah, sit next to the team. And I mean, in many ways, the the two teams were um, trying to optimize for. Just getting ideas to to cross between the two uh, two sides, the language, the runtime, and the and the UI side of things. I think it's kind of interesting that both actually Flutter basically came from Chrome, right? You guys kind of were brought in for this, and Dart came out of it, and then you know the Sky team kind of came out with this. I, I'm kind of curious, like when you went to develop, or sorry, when you went to show off this, it was still called Sky at the time, right? You went to show it off to people. Was it still web focused? Like, kind of like, what, what was the changing time where, where you guys were like, wait a minute, let's try and let's kind of park web and let's go back to, or let's try mobile, right? Like, what what happened over here? I think I think the the realization for the from the Flutter team, right, was really that um, that mobile was sort of sort of an unsolved challenge. Like cross platform mobile doing that extremely well felt like something that would have high value for for Google offerings, but also on the outside. Right? We just saw a a uh, skepticism in, uh, that the people had uh, that they, they they wanted it, but they also knew that it probably came with trade-offs they didn't like. But but here we, we saw that we could probably build something that had the right cross-platform properties with very few of the like the the, the bad trade-offs, right? So so you could really get something that felt fluid, slick, native, nice, um, and still get something that actually works across iOS and Android. Um, somehow the selling points were just so obvious that it just felt like, yes, people will people will react well to this if we can deliver on on the performance and the smoothness and the developer experience. That's like the funny thing is like, I, I can imagine going to web, but to me, I could, as being somebody who does, who I did do some native apps and of course I've done web for a long time. I just kind of imagine how you can go from web to, to native. Like, uh, is it a difficult process? It seems like to you that it was, oh no, of course it's very easy. You just got to do this, this, and it's done. Like, is it really so simple? Like, or, or was it this, because I heard that Skia engine, right? SKI is, is kind of like brought a lot of this capabilities, no? Is that kind yeah, of the secret sauce too? Sure, Skia was like a graphics library used by Chrome and used by Android. So uh, like a, a hardware accelerated graphics library. And I think, 
So if you wanted to do something like a boil down browsery kind of thing that you could tweak into a, the greatest mobile toolkit, uh, you had to bring hardware accelerated graphics with you. And then we just had a great library for that skier. So again, like the, the, the Flutter team there, I think they, they found, uh, I think Eric would probably refer to them like, like the like nuggets of gold, like hidden in this big thing and just drag them out, like skia, dot, uh, some of the layout systems uh, in in the browser, and then brought them together, and got rid of everything else, right? And then built around that instead. Um, so yeah, definitely there were technology achievements that they could build on top of that that weren't there like ten years earlier. Um, so it, it's also a great timing, uh, and and uh, so the, it's not accidental, right? It's it, it's I mean, someone realized that like. Like there's so much more here that actually is really high quality. We, if we just put this together, we have something awesome. It almost seems like you guys cracked open Chrome, started picking out pieces that you guys thought were really useful, and then went to the back room and pulled out some more things that were a little bit kind of maybe put on the shelf and dusted them off and put it together. It's Yeah, exactly. Like so, Suddenly things changed, yeah. context changed. Suddenly a few of the great ideas that we had uh, lying around, like a virtual machine for Dart, just fit right in. Okay, let's do it. Uh, so that, that was great. Yeah, I, I guess the, the the downside in all this, right? I, I really loved working on on the Datino embedded devices and all that stuff. Um, and like with this focus on Flutter, uh, that just like didn't really feel like a, a natural uh, thing to, to spend all our time on. But the notion of improving like code for devices for embedded systems was still like a, a big thing for me. On and for Lars as well, right? We we we. Started doing that at Sun Microsystems on small cell phones, and uh, spent some years at our uh, own startup doing this as well. And and somehow we, I don't think we ever felt like we reached the the right state with that. We didn't really like hit it to the to the get to the, the finish line with the with really improving how people develop for like small small like chips like these, right? Where you have uh, like like two dollar microcontrollers that can are probably. Like significantly faster than the first desktop machine that I use, right? It's 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 kind of crazy what you can get your hands on today. Um, so so actually, ever after working on Flutter and and, and Dart and working for Google for yeah, more than a decade, we actually decided that in the sort of early eighteen that we would escape from the the chocolate factory and the, and and start something new in. I guess no surprise in the language developer tooling space, but uh, again, you could say um, centered around the idea of improving how people develop high-quality functionality software for devices. So that's that's actually what I'm I'm doing today. So my my goal is super simple now. I I have this I have this entire roll of CPUs here, and I mean if you wonder why there's a CPU shortage, like a chip shortage. Right now, I'm probably to blame. I, mean, I have them all here in my office. So if you need some, let me know. No, I'm just, I really love these, these chips you can get your hands on, right? You can, you can get them, they're cheap and they're really powerful. So the biggest problem that I see and what Lars and I saw when we started our new company, Toit, in, uh, in early 18, was really this, this need for making high level developers, people that know how to build web apps and work with like Python and server side setting comfortable developing functionality for like the IOT, for the Internet of Things, for devices. And, uh, and so we actually been working for the last like well over three years on, uh, on, on this project of, of making it possible for, yeah, for you 
to uh, to write high-level code for a device that uh, that on a small microcontroller actually gives you like process isolation, just like Chrome tabs are isolated from each other. It gives you a way to run functionality code separated from each other uh, through uh, our virtual machine abstraction that runs on the device and gives you a, a fantastic way of developing these, these small applications that can be installed, uninstalled, work with, even when the device has been deployed is out in production, right? So, so we've customers that have small uh, embedded devices that are sitting in the middle of the, uh, the North Sea uh, that are then serviced over a cellular connection. And because of the platform that we put on, on these, um, like the, the language and the virtual machine, and we call the language Toit as well. Um, because of that, it's now possible to actually service these devices and upgrade them and keep them running like, over the years. Um, so, so in some ways, the, the idea of, of improving what you can do on small devices just never escaped us. And uh, after being like, in a, an American company for, for a few decades, it, it felt like it was time to, um, to, to, to try the startup uh, scene again. Uh, so we're, we're, we're super excited about what we've uh, managed to build there with, uh, with a team of like, Googlers and, and folks from, from Uber. And you're probably wondering why, why the hell is it called Toyd? At least most people don't really understand why, why that name is. And it's, it's an old joke. Uh, and it's probably a bad one as well. But Lars and I, we've always um, shared a lot of uh, technical um, uh, ideas and then had lots of agreements and disagreements in that space. But one of the things we always agreed on was that the fact that one of the, the funniest movies ever made was a really silly one called Austin Powers. I don't know if you know Austin Powers, but the last one, the gold member one, gold member is this supervillain from from uh, from Holland, from the Netherlands, who has a weird accent. And at some point, he calls Austin Powers' father. Um, he, he 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 tells him that he's tight like a tiger, and it's a compliment. It means that he's like he's he's really well built, tight. Uh, so we just thought that that name, tight like a tiger, was just a super meaningful thing and. If you want something in a software platform for embedded devices, it is that it's it's tight, it's it's closely knit, it's done well for that that purpose. It's really yeah, tight like a tiger. So we picked that name, even though it's kind of a, a, a weird thing to put in there, and it means something else in French. But I think it's it's a it's it's honestly a, a quite an interesting sort of piece of technology that we've we've, we've built there for um, for folks that want to try to build software, not firmware for uh, for devices and take them of their sort of high level skills and bring them out to the cellular connected, battery operated, internet of things world. So so how does how does the whole thing work? Because I've worked a little bit uh, with nerves. I don't know if you've heard, I've probably heard of nerves because you're in that space, right? Um, they have a AB partition. I'm guessing you must be doing something similar because these things can fail, right? You have a cellular connection that could drop like that, especially in the middle of the Atlantic, right? So how, how does the whole thing Work. Yeah, so so I mean, it, it's done at two levels, right? So at the core of it, on on these small ESP32, uh, a, a, a sort of a fairly disruptive chip choice from a Chinese manufacturer. It's it's a really excellent chip. It uh, like a dual core, 240 megahertz uh, RISC CPU. Uh, you can get that for less than two US dollars, um, and it has like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth built in. It's it's pretty awesome. But on a chip like that, at the core of it, you have like a a real sum operating system, and uh, we put our virtual machine on top of that, and then all the way up, including the virtual machine, we consider that the firmware of the device. And when we update that, we do what you described. Like you have 
like a multi-partition setup where where you build up the new version in the position you're not running so that you only flip over to it once you've made sure that the, that you've gotten all the way through the update right this is this is like how chrome os works as well with like the update mechanisms you you're updating the copy that you are not running so you can verify that it actually got the right update before you flip over to it in the sort of the uh, sort of transactional style uh, thing so that that's what we do as well but for the applications that run on top of this we just realized that we can actually allow you to install these applications without updating the firmware so you can install new self-contained small applications and replace them as you go and there like we we don't really need partitions we just we just put these uh, applications in flash and find them sort of almost like in a file system um, and so if you're installing version n plus one uh, next to version n we uh, we just allow you to say i only want to flip over and use the the newest version when i'm done with that install it doesn't have to be partitioned that way so it's much more flexible and this works because the uh, the uh, applications are fully uh, relocatable, so they can be stored anywhere in, in Flash. So it doesn't, we don't need to know where they end up. Uh, so just we just move them in where, where it makes sense, um, and they're very small. So we can send like a new application to a fleet of a thousand devices, uh, and just send like 30 kilobytes of uh, of uh, optimized code to these uh, these devices. Um, so we're sort of back in the uh, uh, object-oriented virtual machine world again here with uh, with building sort of a a layer that sits on all these devices that that turns these devices into I would say like small little serviceable upgradable computers right instead of being sort of hardwired microcontrollers that are difficult to interact with and with that what we built as a sort of a product is really a cloud-hosted API a, a place where you using gRPC at Google's uh, RPC mechanism you can go and interact with our APIs and through that communicate and deploy code to all your devices, right? So you talk to an API, high, uh, sort of high level, well-structured declarative API. And through that, you get to control your entire fleet of devices to the extent that you can even like push code to it, schedule jobs on them and tell it what, what to do over time and get the data back from them. So it's like a very high level IoT platform play, if you will, on the software side. It's pretty awesome. So, so I was going to say, like, what, what is actually like uh, when you say an application, right? To me, I keep thinking about something visual. So what kind of applications are we talking about? So most applications in this context are, are, are probably simpler than something visual, because like clearly if you have a device like, like like this, like where would you where would you put the UI? So it's more like a you could say like a measurement uh, instrument, a, a sophisticated sensor or something that gathers data. It could be from like reading the temperature, the humidity, the CO2 levels. Um, or even decoding some uh, some images or video that you you have on the device, and then making decisions based on that data, filtering it, aggregating it, and in most cases forwarding at least part of that data to the cloud for further analysis or for for a better integration. So it could be a push button like the what's it called Amazon Amazon Dash button, where you could order extra cereal by just clicking a button that was hidden in your in your cupboard. You could definitely build something like that where. It doesn't have a UI, but it does have a, a an actionable actionable thing, a button. Or you could you could piece together this uh, like C monitoring device that I talked about, where you can you can install a device out in the sea that measures like water quality um, and things like that, and report that back in a meaningful way, or control some process through it, either um, either like opening or closing gates or or dealing with things out there, right? So we see people doing a lot of uh, sort of fairly innovative work in the sort of the agri-tech space where 
like indoor farming is 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 really exploding. Uh, like these different ways of like vertical and indoor farming and, and doing intelligent smart farming uh, better. It's it's become a very hot topic, right? And there, like you need to control ventilation and uh, and uh, uh, supply of nutrients and, and other things based on the kind of readings you get from these devices. So even though they don't have a UI, they still may not interact so much with you as they do with their environment. Does that make make sense as a sort of distinction? Yeah, 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 definitely. I understand now because I'm, I was just thinking about how you can actually read the data. So if it is reading information, it's just probably sending data back and then you just have to read from, from that source that's collecting all the information, right? Exactly right. So we, we see a lot of customers that actually end up like wanting to do interesting things with the data on the device, right? I think the, the old school version is forwarding everything to the cloud side and making decisions there. But there is like latencies involved. You have to send the data over a cellular connection. It just doesn't feel quite right for all of it, right? So we actually find that most sophisticated users end up doing at least a chunk of the work on the device because they're so powerful. You can do so many things on the devices. Like these edge computing devices are very powerful, even though they cost less than $2, right? So harnessing that and, and making better decisions out there while the device is on your kitchen wall uh, so it doesn't have to communicate with the cloud to work is actually a, a real strength. Um, I know like cellular coverage is getting better and better, but I feel like when you're in the physical world, it still feels like um, you will have auditors, you will have you will get into areas where things are, are not working as smoothly. And there it's really nice that the device is, is um, capable of making sort of in a more um, asynchronous uh, way and in a way that's that's decoupled from the cloud in a, in a sort of a, in, a, in a healthy way. So, so how does that work? Like I can imagine, uh, I mean, I have so many questions in my head I'm just thinking about because I mean, I'm aware of, I mean, working on mobile apps, right? You lose connection all the time. Network partitions just happen. So, I mean, do you like queue things up and then try to send them out again later and you kind of abstract that away from the user when they write their app? I mean, how much, how much of the stuff is the app writer versus how much do you guys handle and, and how does this whole thing work? We found, and it's sort of interesting, we started with it, let the app writer deal with it. It's probably the easiest, uh, but it turns out that most of the decisions you make from a single app are not ideal for the system as a whole. So a device like this to preserve power, uh, to preserve like battery uh, and run um, for a long time, they they want to go to sleep and then and enter like a deep sleep mode, like hibernate, like your your, your laptop might, might do, right? To preserve power. And, um, and when they do that, you need to shut down all activity on the device. So you need to schedule that really, really well. So moving the scheduling decisions and like the logic a little bit away from the applications and make the system take care of more of that is a logical way of achieving that. And that also applies to the data side. So if you want to send data or produce data, it's probably a better way of saying it, then you may not actually want to also dictate when it's a good time to connect to the cloud in terms of preserving battery. And so it might be clever to like bundle things up and send things in, in, in some chunks. It might be good to wait for that other application to be done generating the data that it wants to generate. So you really need the system to take care of that for you. It's a really long way of saying, we take care of that for you. The application cares about producing the data and then the system takes care of connecting often enough to offload the data when that makes sense. Um, so it's really about sort of an optimization challenge in a sense, right? Make sure that you get enough responsiveness, uh, but still also preserve enough battery to make this, this work, work well. 
And we found that the best way of doing this is really helping the, the developers and let them sort of declare what they need from this. They tell the system, not that I want to write a piece of code that says, I write the loop that connects every three days, but more like say, declare in a configuration file that this application needs to run at least every three days or when this kind of thing happens and set that, that system up. And I think if you're familiar with like microservice architectures in a, in a cloud setting, this kind of idea of having sort of rules and 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 uh, and configuration between the services is a is a fairly common way of setting these things up, right? Because you want to reason about those rules, and if it's all code, sort of imperative that does something every now and then, it's very hard to reason about that collect collection of code. So we we went for the declarative configured way. So all applications tell you what they intend and what they need, and then the system optimizes for that. And it's hard to explain. You probably have to try it out. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, if if there's a way I could try it out, I would love to try it out. Um, there, there is, there is a way. So, so we we just opened up the uh, the uh, the, um, the ability to actually run this uh, the system on on your devices. So, if you if you have an, an ESP32 device or if you know how to get one, uh, it's not it's not expensive. It's very very straightforward to uh, to go to uh, toit dot io and uh, and sign up and uh, and just. Uh, provision the device and get it into the to your fleet and start coding on it. In there, you can also get a glimpse for what we think might be uh, the best choice for a language for the, uh, the connected devices out there. Uh, we have some, some language tutorials. And I think and there are lots of people that, that care about languages. I, I know I do. Uh, so if, I think if you're into languages and want to get a sense for how um, a freshly designed language for that, that context could look like. Um, I think we have a pretty good um, uh, story story around that in the, in the documentation uh, side of things. Okay, I have to take a look at this. I just saw a block of code. I was surprised. I I saw oh, white but, space. <laughs> you saw, yeah, yeah. yeah we, we come, we've come full circle, right? Um, we, we've we've looked a lot about these different things, and uh, and there's something appealing about. Uh, being white space significant, uh, significant white space in some contexts, we feel like this is actually one of the areas where it could work. Uh, so we've actually pushed on that for for this. What it really enables for us is a super lightweight um, support for uh, user-defined control flow uh, and control structures. That means that like an if statement in the in the code, which is sort of a, a built-in thing in most languages, you can write your own uh, control structures that look exactly like that in the in in our toy language. And there, not having to add parentheses and braces around the, the function expressions or the closure you pass around really helps make it all sort of fit together. You know, there, there's a difference between like for each uh, in, uh, in calling for each on a, on a collection in, uh, in Dart or in, uh, on JavaScript or using the built-in uh, for, uh, for loops. It just looks slightly different. And we wanted to, to see if we could remove that difference and promote the use of user-defined library-provided uh, control flow structures instead. Um, and I think it, it actually works really, really well. And the implementation of these these closures, these blocks, we call them, uh, is really slick. So it's, uh, I think if you're a language-interested uh, uh, developer, uh, you probably find that, uh, that that way we've done that uh, quite intriguing. Now, do you also have the idea of isolates? Because, I mean, are they, it's, two, it's two cores, right? So I guess you must have some kind of scheduling underneath, right? I'm happy you asked. Yeah, so we, we do. Um, we, we, we decided to call them process instead of isolate, but they really are like 
independently scheduled entities that run in their own memory space uh, we allow them to communicate and um, and essentially in this context there is nothing but the toy virtual machine so every application that runs just runs in an isolate uh, in a process of its own um, and uh, the virtual machine provides that if you were running on top of something like linux on a, on a sort of a, a bigger machine linux would give you processes um, but but here like you're on a microcontroller that doesn't have support for that there's no hardware support for memory isolation so we, we had to build that in, in software uh, we're happy to uh, but it gives you that ability right to to build um, functionality around the idea of having multiple independent units that can fail independently as well so there's a lot of sort of Erlang inspiration in this in this as well um, and and the uh, and the ability to actually start new processes from within one process and have that do something for you using the multi-core um, properties of this underlying system but also getting things like garbage collection uh, is suddenly now and I think for a specific isolate so if you if you have a lot of memory churn in one isolate it doesn't cost for the others right if you if you didn't have isolates and you did lots of allocation it would it would hurt the, the entire system here it's much more well no pun intended it's much more isolated right also in terms of that so so yes they're definitely independently executing the units there we call them process but they're really isolates yeah I, i'm actually i was actually kind of curious because i think i did ask you when we first talked a while back about like where did you get the idea from is actually you looked at erlang and said this is interesting or was it something else yeah, yeah erlang was was a, was a pretty big inspiration there and um, I, I think like the Erlang guys were more relentless in the pursuit of using this as the basis for all programs. And they probably got some better results because of that. I mean, they, they went all out on this. Uh, so a, a well-functioning Erlang program is like nothing but a collection of processes that communicate in, in, in ways, right? So they, they went all the way and maybe maybe we should go go further with it. But, but I really think that this notion of running things in isolation and being able to reason about them on a more uh, um, separate level is just a very useful way of, of of, uh, of thinking about solving problems um, and and there's something really interesting about this this uh, sort of like some of the airline concepts with um with like like failing fast by saying well we don't try to solve a problem within one process let, let that fail and deal with that at a higher level because you're probably not going to be able to recover that state in there anyway so don't try to do that in, in the common case right um, because you have building blocks that can like, fail at a more at the right granularity instead the processes and so we try to replicate some of that Clearly, we're a little bit constrained here. We run in like half a megabyte of RAM. So you're probably not going to be having fun spinning up a thousand isolates, but we definitely see people running with a, with a, with a number of them. Uh, and they, they like that they can separate critical functionality from less critical functionality as they, as they test these things, right? They have things that they'd rather not change because it's, it's core and critical for them. Like the update mechanism that we run sort of in the, in the kernel of the system, if you will. That's isolated using the same mechanism and that allows us to guarantee that you can always service and update the device, even if you have an application that's doing a busy loop. But then you cannot do hot code upgrades, right? You have to always flip over. We, we do the few hot code upgrade. No, we, we decided to do the flip over instead. Um, the isolates are generally smaller here than the, the full state of a uh, Flutter app. And we, we thought about doing doing like like hot hot reload for, uh, for, for that instead and preserve the state. Um, we find though that applications on these devices are a little different because you generally don't have long running applications on these IoT devices. That this, this, the device goes to sleep fairly frequently, and that means that you sort of have to get used to 
writing code in a in a in a almost stateless system, right? That you you boot up, like RAM is cleared, you start over, you build up some state, you capture the what's important to you, you store that somewhere, and then you go to sleep again. And that's sort of more the model of it, right? So so telling people that that you can run forever and then we can change the code while we keep the state. At least we've found so far that that's not a really helpful thing for the developers that also need to consider the fact that the device is probably going to sleep in within like the next three seconds to preserve battery. So it's just a different setup, right? A mobile app runs for a long time compared to an IoT app that boots up, reads something, records it, and shuts down again. What kind of like, I'm kind of curious about because I can imagine if you put like a sensor into something that you had to know if there was too much or too little of some type of measurement, right? How how often are these things running for? Are they running for like just a couple times a minute or what's kind of the running frequency? It it very much depends. And we, we've had some cases where people wanted to run like for multiple years on sort of completely standard AA batteries. And they're often like you boot up maybe every minute, measure something really simple and go back to sleep. Um, if there are things that are more expensive to measure, like say getting a GPS location from, from scratch without any help from other systems, it takes longer, right? Then you probably want to do it less frequently. Um, so generally what people end up doing is adding like fairly sophisticated uh, functionality on the devices to deal with the differences so that they optimize the battery usage. So they, they for instance, they, they don't go for a static um, pattern of, of every single application will run every five minutes. It's like this part of the application, this, this job, this task will run very frequently, but do very little. This other part will will happen only when we see this thing happening or when told to, and they sort of they 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 spend a lot of time on the scheduling and and understanding how how often uh, they have to um, force the device to to run uh, because this is really where it, it spends its energy. So so it's very hard to to say as a rule of thumb, but we do see people that are measuring every second and that works beautifully well uh, as long as they're not measuring like too much and trying to store it in a too small flash, right? Um, so it's all a, like how fast do you have a connection to the to the internet? Do you have like narrowband IoT or CADM1 or like what's the what's the bandwidth? Uh, so it's it's a little bit more tailored to the situations the devices end up in. Um, I think you're muted, Alan. Yeah, you caught me. <laughs> no, I I mean, I'm kind of curious. Like your whole. I believe just your product, I mean, you're not really focusing necessarily on the hardware itself. You're more fo focusing on uh, orchestrating the updates and, 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 and this kind of stuff, right? You're not really doing the designing devices for people. Is no, that, no, 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 we're a software platform, but it is something that covers developer tools on your workstation. It covers cloud infrastructure that takes care of the all the hard parts of orchestrating software rollout to a fleet of devices. And then device software that makes the device uh, a robust target and a performant target for your applications, right? So it's like a three um, parts to it. Um, so it's a very horizontal offering in, in that sense. But no, what our customers, they actually come to us, right? And they, they carry a, a roll of chips like this. This is the ESP32s. And then they, they put that together and design that they, they want. And you can buy off-the-shelf designs too if you just want to play with the developer boards and things like that. But they come with the hardware, put our software platform onto it, and suddenly they have a machine that they can really work with, even if they're they're more used to being 
working in a web context or writing Python for a server. So the what I would call the the end client or end 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 user of your system, right? The uh, sorry, let's say the developer themselves, they're actually coming from a web background. I heard you mention that before. They're not really coming from a embed system background, right? That's who you're kind of targeting. Yeah, we we see that. Um, I mean, I think we're super attractive for people in the embedded space as well. Um, but but I think where we really enable new people to uh, to play along, developers that 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 may not be experts in, in low-level C code to actually do something on a on a device. I think that's, that's really where we see us standing out from the crowd, right? We have lots of people coming to us that are used to writing uh, or toying with or dealing with um, IoT based on, say, Raspberry Pi. Um, and the Raspberry Pi is a beautiful little machine, right? But it's like a single board computer that's running Linux that has like too much memory and it has like everything, right? So people write small snippets of Python on that, that reads temperatures and forwards that to the cloud. You can do all of that and do it better on a device like ours that's significantly cheaper. It works really, really well on batteries. That's very hard to do with a Raspberry Pi. And we get to upgrade the entire software stack with updates that are less than 100K. Even like the full firmware patches that we send over can be very, very small because the system is just toyed. And with that, we really and we can service such a device extremely well over like a sim card based communication channel uh, and that's just very hard to do with anything in the raspberry pi class thing because sending over like a 10 megabyte update or a 100 megabyte update uh, for for getting like the new linux kernel and everything else updated here and they're like a python version update it's just painful and then you have to deal with maintaining all this stuff yourself or you have to use a another layer of of system for that and the complexity just adds on right we just cut all that away and say if you want to read peripherals and measurements and sensors and interact with that and still be serviceable from the outside over a network connection we have an option for you right it doesn't solve all needs in the world there are things a raspberry pi can do that an esp32 cannot in terms of compute power but if you really care about reading like a can bus or a temperature sensor or or sort of engaging in that part of the world and building functionality around that, like, why don't you pick something that's like orders of magnitude better for that, right? In, in terms of the hardware and, and put a software platform on, on it that allows you to still see the world as like a high level thing where you get to decide what code to run and when to run it on. Okay, that's pretty cool. I, I was just wondering, um... She kind of lost my train of thought now. I, I took my first dose of the uh, BioNTech vaccine earlier today, so I think it's starting starting to work on me. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll see if hopefully I can make it to the second one. Um, I did have a quick question about about something, and now I lost the the train. Actually, sorry. Now I got my. I know the question now. The question I wanted to ask is, um, what's like the most crazy or interesting uh, thing that people are actually doing with the toy platform right now? Most crazy or interesting thing? I think the most crazy thing that we're seeing people um, using Toy for is really um, when they have when they're in sort of a, a disruptive field like uh, autonomous vehicles or uh, in, in sort of uh, controlling a sophisticated biological process. When they come from that and they are in a complex, difficult environment, and they think about how do we monitor and measure and work with that from a small computer that we can add to it. That's where we fit in, and that's where we see ourselves being sort of glued onto or attached to something that is, even in its own right, really, really crazy, right? So, like, 
autonomous vehicles they need to be tracked over time like telematics for that is it's definitely like a hot hot topic right and when we see people coming to us to get us to sort of help them get like best in class telematics for for that space it is kind of crazy right i have a a, a colleague here who's building like a, a full-blown drone based on um based on toy as well controlling all the motors and all the rotors and everything else and we're starting to see interest in that kind of kind of thing right because it's a complex thing with gyros and 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 stabilizers and, and making all that work and it's all software today right and i think we just really fit well in that so i think honestly maybe the craziest thing i've seen so far is is a guy running scared around in his living room because the drone that he wrote the code for is getting out of control like that that is kind of crazy and scary but it's also fun uh, so did he what live stream himself to you to see that or are you actually in his house when uh, this is going on? we went there uh, we had a small outing and we went there and, uh, and suddenly we he wanted to demonstrate it and it was uh, like you could just tell the excitement around this thing with motors and rotors and everything that uh, that uh, that you have to be a little bit careful with these things but it's uh, and it was in, inside his house as well so i guess he also cared about his his furniture um, but th those are kind of crazy things that we see right Often people start with something relatively straightforward. They want to monitor and measure something and they want to get the data out and they want it to be completely reliable. So they come to us because they need to trust uh, someone to deliver the foundation for just getting this very critical data from like the setting they're in and out. But I think once they have that, some of these ideas just pop up and people start doing like crazy things with it. Right? He posted a video on, I think on Reddit with part of it where he's, He's showing like, a, like one of the stabilizers and a small Lego man and how it sort of all works and it's like a 30 second thing and I think a few people got excited about that in the I think in the ESP32 um, Reddit community. Uh, it's, I mean it's just fun little things, right? So crazy and hardware sort of uh, in this space. It's it's not a common combination. So I, I think anything we see there where people are pushing the envelope and and doing crazy things is a healthy sign that people are starting to toy, experiment, innovate. And before, before something like Toyd was a possibility, people would just be extremely conservative on anything that they put on these devices because they didn't feel like getting in trouble if they, they break the device and never could reach it again. They, they just didn't want to try things out. So, I mean, another crazy thing that we see people do is just be completely um, sure that updating the firmware on all the devices that are in the middle of the sea is just going to work because we take care of that in some sense that feels like at least to them like crazy if they look back at the what they did before right we have companies where they they like the entire company would like hold their collective breaths when they send out the like the the, the half year update uh, because like they never like they tested it and they were quite sure that it worked but if it didn't they were in trouble right um and it's so for them it probably feels crazy that now they can push new code every week uh, just like like the rest of us do in a web setting or in a mobile setting, right? It's uh, like, welcome to the modern world. Is that kind of what you feel like when you bring this technology to these people? It's just like, hey, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you're finally uh, in the in the same decade as us. It's uh, it's good, right? Well, that, that's exactly it. And and I mean, some of them may not like that. Right? And, and I guess if you're really really great with a C compiler and embedded systems, there's still a strong need for your skills. Um, but I think it is nice that it opens up this as a playground for for all of us that also just want to write stuff and play with it, try it out, right? Um, without feeling that it's a scary thing to push new code to a, a device, right? Um, so yeah, like lots of things have changed, and and the embedded world needs to uh, 
to change too, I think. Um, follow follow the the modern trends. Yeah. So I can imagine like you're just in like a big control room, just like Apollo 11, right? And you're, everybody's kind of holding their breath. And that's, is that what it's like when you have a new customer and it's your first time deploying and they're... Uh, I and think cheers and everything? Oh, people get excited, right? Um, and and I think as long I mean that's that's part of our mission, right? It's just showing that they don't have they're not the first ones to try this out, um, uh, so they they can feel they can feel assured that we probably um, um, that we are set up to be uh, to be like someone they can they can rely on to 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 do this for them, right? I think most people today trust that the Linux kernel will behave, and, and we're sort of at the same level, right? That we provide that functionality and. Chances are that you will not run into a bug in the Linux kernel. Like you might, but it's rare, right? Because it's just so heavily tested and so heavily used. Um, and I said we're in the same space, right? We we take care of this critical piece of the fun uh, functionality because we are really good at that. Like we have a great team that 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 have built this for you know, browsers, for mobile, for uh, for other settings, for like uh, the the majority of the team that that works on the. Uh, the cloud infrastructure we have used to do cloud infrastructure at, at Uber at, at scale for uh, before, right? So it's sort of a dream team for for solving this problem. Um, it's a, I would say that for me at least, that's a it's a nice sort of continuation of uh, sort of work that I really care about, but still in a new context. In this time, startup company um, where we we really feel that we're we're onto something here that can I think change a good chunk of uh, of how the the industry and the, the the area around connected devices, uh, how they how they develop functionality, how they work. So was this again Lars that kind of said it's time to leave, and uh, this is what I'm thinking about? I, w I would say that this time around, we we sort of talked about it for we've talked about this for for years now. That I mean, at some point we should do a startup company, and uh, I think Lars again left Google before I did because I think he felt like them. It's never going to happen if I don't if I don't start and that's all his, his thing, he's a great starter there. And so he, he, he did leave before me. And then at some point I felt like, okay, maybe, maybe this time, maybe, maybe it's right. Um, so I left as well. And then we, we got together there early, early 18 and, uh, and really started hacking on this thing together. And we actually started working on, um, started working on the, on the toy uh, language, the toy implementation in, uh, in exactly the same building, uh, part of Lars's old farmhouse where we started uh, the the startup company that we ended up selling to the the Swiss company where we wrote the first lines of code for uh, for V8 uh, and then we returned later here for the next startup company as well so when Google hired us in we we actually like got back to Lars's farm when we started uh, toyed again it was also back to the same same place so that's been the starting point for at least three things that we feel super proud about that must be a very expensive piece of property now that if so many good ideas get started sold in this it. place. Sold it. So <laughs> so it's like the next idea will not start there. So that's the way it goes. I guess. Or you're not going to come back to them and just knock on the door and say, excuse me, can I hang out here for a couple of years? Well, maybe, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe that's the right approach. Uh, I have another idea. Uh, I need I need to borrow your farmhouse. Yeah, that, that could work. I just keep thinking about your background, right? It's it's. I know people kind of stay in the same industry or, or, or whatever, but it seems like you're you bounce back and forth, but between the same, I would say, two or three areas, at least three to four, maybe. Uh, you know, kind of embedded, uh, um, trying to solve, yeah, mostly embedded stuff, right? JavaScript, you kind of bounce around in between Java, no relation, obviously. It's just interesting how you kind of stayed in the space. 
I think like virtual machines, language, developer tooling. I think that those are the like the core things. They have different different flavors, right? Targets can be browsers, mobile, embedded. Language can be like Java, JavaScript, Smalltalk, Toit, uh, maybe one day Erlang, right? But but I think at the core of it, that that sort of that that mindset that find an, a target where you could really help something move faster and uh, use something that you think you're good at in that, in that context and then and figure out what, what's the right things to bring along in terms of languages, runtimes and people and then go do it. I think that's, that's been uh, sort of my, uh, my take on this for, for now a couple of decades. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think uh, this is probably a great spot for us to kind of wrap up, right? Because you're, you're at a place, I mean, you talked about a lot. It's, We've been here for about two hours and 15 minutes, right? I, know, I, know. I want to keep going, but at the same time, I need to also get some rest. And I think Makes you sense. need to also rest your voice. Yeah, yeah, I know. So is, is there, as I say, is there anything else you wanted to, to, to say before we start to kind of wrap up with a couple of things? No, I think I mean, it might be worth repeating that. I think I think it really is healthy that, that the world has gone sort of multilingual, that people in the programming side of, 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 uh, of things are happy trying out things like playing with Rust, building with Go, writing Java, JavaScript, C-sharp, Dart. I think it really gives more flavor to what we do. And I think it's a, I think it's very healthy to feel comfortable in many different languages because I think it makes you a, a better programmer. And in particular, if there are languages that, that have different um, properties, right, that you learn something different from each of them. I think, I, I mean, maybe that's a, a good parting thought from, from my side at least that I feel fortunate that the world is heading in that direction and that the the appetite for innovative languages and ways to express programming thoughts seems to be going like the right direction. Uh, and I think that that makes it even more fun for people like me to uh, to implement these things and then put them out there and get some feedback and some traction. Yeah, that, that's true. I, I, I find... Yeah, the more languages I learn, the more better of a programmer I, I become. You know, you, you take some pieces from over there and connect them together. But the one thing that does bother me sometimes is like when people use camel case and Python, right? It's not the right style to me. To me, that part really ticks me off. Or do you have any kind of thing that really bothers you about certain, when people write certain languages? Um, indentation by tabs, yeah. I was going to ask you about it. Are you a tabs or spaces kind of person? But I was afraid that maybe you would get haters either way. Yeah, I probably will, but that's okay. Yeah. Or too much indentation, like eight spaces or something. That's just crazy. Yeah, too much. Uh, yeah. I've never heard of eight spaces. That sounds ludicrous. I think two to three is already enough. Once yeah. you get, you know, with Python, right? Once you, what is it? 72 characters? Is that the, the width, I think? Maybe it is. Yeah. So, yeah. So then you must have a style guide similar to that if you're going to be so close to Python, right? Do you also have a 72-character uh, length or anything like that for, for the Toit language? Yeah, we, we do have some sort of implicit style guides in a few places and a few more explicit parts too. But but I think, honestly, a lot of style guides are, are today being replaced by by automatic formatting instead. And, then, and that's probably a healthy thing for, for a lot of developers at least. Uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I think it probably solves more problems than it introduces. So I think that that's, that's probably a healthy thing, right? Don't... Don't spend your time on, on that and just blame the tool instead, and that's probably fine. Actually, I do have one last question uh, now that you're, you're, you're kind of bringing in some more stuff with me. As somebody who's kind of created now, it seems, at least two languages that I can think of, right? The Toyot and Dart, there's probably more. Um, 
what do you think is kind of, you know, the top one to three things that really make or break a language? Um, uh, to me, I think I heard a lot of this probably about tooling, right? If you don't have proper tooling or, or build mechanism, that's probably where they kill a language. I think I, I'd love the answer to be different, I think. I'm not really sure. No, I think, honestly, I think the answer is is that it, that it has a meaningful context. Like it has a, like a vehicle to attach itself to that where sort of where in that the context of that it it makes a difference so like a language without a a use case a place where it fits in something to attach it to is is almost not interesting right so a language of its own doesn't make a ton of sense i think but a language in a context of a browser or on mobile like flutter or toyed in the iot space i think that 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 makes sense in that context so general purpose languages are just kind of hard to get out there as that they need to usually get get out there through success of something else right and i think we've seen that in the past too objective c that was the uh, the the apple uh, push for that and um, a lot of things like that right has, has happened in the past so i think for the outside of that that works on the inside i'd love to think that simple well-designed consistent languages make it all the way through but in practice i think there's a really large appetite for also large languages sort of in the in the mainstream community so, so I think being being too hung up over um, having the smallest, most elegant, well-designed language is not necessarily a recipe for sort of large-scale mainstream success. I mean, you you can end up with a much better language through that, and maybe get like a die-hard uh, sort of group of people that really like it. Um, and I think that's that's really really a good idea. But if you really want to make it big and get a million developers. There probably will be some feature creep where you try to cater to different programming styles and, and different things, right, just to make it our way. So it's probably more, much more pragmatic than than sort of a idealized when it comes to to language design. If you want to make it big in terms of like developer eyeballs, I think that those are the, the main two things. I and mean, there are lots of small details on, on how how you can do mm -hmm. things you should do, but I think those two actually yeah. are more important than anything else, right? Okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah, is there anything else? Uh, I, think, before... I, think, I think that's it. I think we, we set out to uh, have a conversation here of, did we agree like, at least an hour? I think we did that. So, uh, so thank you so much for your time, Alan. More than double. All right. Uh, there's a couple of questions I wanted to ask you that we always try to ask people whenever they come on. Okay. Uh, the first question is, uh, when you do write Flutter apps, right? Are you, what kind of state management solution do you usually use? So I don't write a lot of Flutter apps, so maybe I'm the wrong guy to ask about this. Yeah. So I, I know that it's a it's a big topic, um, and it's really nice that you have you have lots of opportunities, you have lots of uh, like libraries that pop up. And in some sense, I think it's a major strength that something as as important as state management is something where people can try different alternatives out. So the fact that you can ask that question, I think that's a good thing. If that had been built too much into the system, we wouldn't have seen a couple of options like uh, pop up and have even have that discussion right so so even though i'm not a user of it um i like that you can even ask the question have you ever had that, that answer before that's the most non-answer yet answer i've heard ever right so right. i, I wasn't right. expecting you to have an answer but i i would i am interested to hear what you what you have to say uh i was also there's also a follow-up question which is why do you think there is so many like why is it such a hot topic why is there so many different things like why can't the the team just decide on that this is what we're going to use right it is, is hot is this something is it's, that just what it is it's just hard 
data is just difficult, right? I think, I mean, object orientation and then and, and all the ideas around that is, is, is a lot about dealing with state, right? With, without any state, um, a lot of things would just be simpler. But, but I think most of us live in worlds and parts of the world that are stateful in some, in some form. So we need to deal with it somehow, right? And then it's all trade-offs, right? If you optimize for one thing, you make certain kinds of reasoning easier to do with one mechanism. You make certain other kinds of operations uh, harder. And it's just kind of, uh, depends on what you want to do with it, right? So I think there's been no great solution to this. I mean, the most extreme one is like the fully functional uh, programming style, uh, which tries to like, come around the problem in a different way. But I think for most cases where you feel like you want to operate with with statefulness, um, you have issues, and there are different approaches to solving them. I mean, in some ways, it's beautiful on IoT here, where you get to sleep all the time, and it's like state goes away so often that it probably becomes less of an issue by design, right? Uh, it also puts limits on what you can do. So, yeah. I think the the last question I have, I'm going to try to make this more general because I can see that you you you, you know you're you're more you're more into other things than this. I'm the engine that's, that's room guy. Fun. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's totally fine. Um, like, do you have any kind of, if if somebody really wants to get out there and learn something uh, and actually, you know, really get into it, like, do you have any kind of recommendations of how they can approach this? I think I think some people really learn well by example, right? So I think starting with uh, with with looking at things is is a great thing. But but the the trick that always worked for me is um, is not stopping at looking at code, but also working with code so i think when you when you download that first flutter example or look at that first snippet don't just think about it like get it down on your machine make sure you can run it set some breakpoints in it step through it like break it change it massage it do whatever you want to it but change and make it yours i think a lot of people are trying to read like a book and then think okay now i think i know what flutter is i i would recommend reading books but i, I really think that it makes more sense to do that after you've You've just tried to hit it with a hammer. Like, don't be afraid of just uh, getting your hands dirty and use the debugger and like, step through things. I think that's the, honestly the, for not all, but for for most people, that gets you across that hurdle of, um, of I wonder if I can do this and get you. Yeah, of course I can do some things with this. And then 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 it's I think it's that time to start um, sort of ramping up on more complicated matters. But I think yeah. Get used to the the tooling, the debugger, and then step through things. Understand them by seeing how they actually work at, I would say, a relatively low level. Like, how does it actually work? I think if you're curious about that and you get some sense for that, you've come a really long way. I think that 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 totally makes sense. That's uh, interesting way to look at it. Yeah, break it is is something I I haven't heard anybody ever say on this podcast, but that's something I, I, I do hear outside of the Flutter communities, break stuff and see how it all works. It's sort of a hardware way of thinking too, right? That like disassemble it and put it together again. And it's probably broken when you try that, but I mean, with software, that's cheap, right? You can always just start over. Yeah, you have Git, right? You can just reset everything back to the, to the head. Yeah, exactly. Git's your friend. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, I wish I had more things to ask you, but I'm I'm running out of E over here, and I think uh, yeah, it's taken too much of your time today. I really appreciate you know uh, you coming aboard. Uh, we'd love to have you back if we have a good topic or, or whatever. If you have something new for Toyot, I mean, I'm also interested. Yeah, it's, next time uh, I will definitely in the same space. Next time I will demonstrate that that magical language for you guys. 
I would also would love to see, you know, the the uh, the drone fly around the room. <laughs> we should get we should get and a video, yeah. It's see running from terror, yeah. Sounds good. Okay. okay. If there's nothing else from your side, then uh, yeah, I'd love to love to have you back on and uh, have a good uh, good day. Thank you so much, and uh, enjoy enjoy your day as well.